Hey, did you know this podcast has a Patreon? At patreon.com slash scarysundayscaries, you can support the podcast for as little as a dollar and get early access to episodes and join in on community posts with all the other hosts and me. Uh, patreon.com slash scarysundayscaries. Get out there and do it. Thanks. Oh, uh, ¿Esa es la con Diego Luna? Yeah. Sí. Oh, okay. Exacto. Y eso es como hicieron la, la programa después oh. sobre su carácter antes que empezara. Pero yo pensé que él se moría en el ah, final. Sí. 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 En el yeah. final de, de Rogue One, sí. Pero, yeah. Muere, yeah. pero esa serie está antes de oh, esto. Oh, so eso es como diciendo la historia de uh -huh. antes de lo Entonces, que pasó. Yo empecé sí. todo esto por... Y es más por... interesante y más mejor de, los, de todas las películas. Yeah. Mm. Yo empecé toda esta tristeza por mirar Andor, eh, yeah. la programa. Sunday scary. Have you seen Twilight Night? Sorry, okay, we're gonna switch to English. Yeah, okay, sorry. I just wanted to test that <laughs> yeah. out. Thank you, everyone, for indulging yeah. me. Um, we'll, we'll keep part of that in it for the for the cold open there too. Yeah, it'll be, it'll Travis, see, uh, you can gauge the listeners and see who's into it. <laughs> yeah, there'll yeah. be there'll be people that are into we, it. Oh, for sure. We can do it. Yeah. yeah. No, it'll be fun. We're yeah. gonna start picking specific movies and do it. I I, I saw um, Requiem for a Dream, and I was like tweeting about it was like this is like nails on a chalkboard for me and they were like yeah but like nobody else makes these kinds of movies they're like i you know it's probably it's how you feel but it's like no one makes you feel that way when they make movies i debated putting it in this watch list for that specific reason like it's kind yeah. of the whole like i mean it's kind of lynchian isn't it it's a mother uh, <laughs> or uh requiem for a dream, requiem for a dream. Yeah. Oh, yeah i can't do it yeah it makes you shudder yeah. i don't know but uh, hey guys, it's Sunday Scaries. It's a podcast about <laughs> horror movies where each week we take a deep dive into a specific film and try to find connections between that film and other movies within the genre. Uh, in this series of episodes, we're leaning into psychological horror and losing our minds with the unsettling, atmospheric, strange, and confusing stories of uh, films that bend your mind and they make you feel uncomfortable. Uh, I'm Travis. I'm Daniel. And this week we have Yaka back. Hi, guys. Uh, Vyaka is joining us to tackle the befuddling and brain-bending work of a director known for pushing the limits of what a viewer can handle as far as strangeness goes. We're talking David Lynch. And more specifically, what movie did we watch this week, guys? Mahal Drive. This is all an You want to know who you are, don't you? Where's this going? It's been a very strange day. I'm getting stranger. Nice. Yes. Good one. Mulholland Drive, 2001. This is a David Lynch movie. Uh, yeah, this is one of the, I think, maybe the last installment of movies of questionable proximity to the horror genre that we're going to uh, be inserting this into the whole watch list. <laughs> thing has been kind of a dive into like, yeah. the line between uh, horror and, uh, you know, insert whatever here is like, yeah. is it horror? We constantly kind of ask this question for this like psychological stuff for like how horrific is it though? Yeah, this was uh, the, the exercise for me has been, watching the movie and finding reasons to put it within the horror genre yeah. uh, to, to justify my choice for putting it in the watch list. Uh, this is a, I don't know. I think it's, I think there's reasons that I'll point out here as we go through the movie that I can justify this being, you know, in a, in a horror movie watch list, at least, uh, at least within a psychological horror or thriller uh, watch list. Yeah. Um, I mean, for, for me, I will say this when, 
when I first watched it, there's a particular scene that scared me so much that I turned the movie off and I didn't revisit it till maybe three years ago or so. So for me, yeah, like in okay. that sense, I was like, oh, this is his most horror-like film. Mm -hmm. But I know that other people would, you know, would throw down like, eraser head yeah and elephant man is like horror yeah like his horror like films but. yeah that was the thing that i was gonna deal with is like i originally had eraser head uh in this spot on the watch list because I, I kind of had the idea to put a lynch movie in here for the purposes of our psychological horror series yeah. and it was either going to be eraser head or this movie and i think I specifically picked this movie because I think that you like this movie more and would rather talk about it as far as like David Lynch goes. Yeah, audience. So we're clear. Bianca Vega is our resident Lynch expert. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I really I really like him. Yeah, I yeah. really do. And Especially this film. Yeah, I would say this one is definitely my favorite of the films that I've seen of his for sure. And as far as the bookends of, I mean, this isn't necessarily a bookend, but as far as the, uh, the breadth of David Lynch's career goes, um, this one, as far as the reception reception goes, definitely seems like the one that gets pointed to as sort of like a Lynch masterpiece, right? It's sort of a culmination of like many of the tropes that of his work, um, sort of coalescing into something that is, uh, sort of at the top of the, the pile of, of his movies. Yeah. Think I think, fair? I think, I think this one would be the most, um, how do you say, uh, palatable? Like if that's, yeah. you know, yeah, like I accessible. That, this is the one that you could, if someone wanted to be introduced to Lynch, yeah, this could be like the, yeah, kind of like the gateway to, to introduce gateway Lynch. Them. Yeah, yeah. Gateway Lynch. <laughs> yeah. Th this, this would be the film that I would choose. Like I wouldn't choose. Twin Peaks, I wouldn't choose, you know, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive would it be like, this is what I want to introduce you to because it has so many different types of genres. Like at, at certain points, we'll, we'll, like, we'll end up talking about it's like it kind of seems like a neo-noir film. At sometimes it's a thriller. At sometimes it's horror. Like it just has so many different genres that he just decided to like blur all together. And he'll never tell you what it's about either. Yeah, so there's asshole. that. He's, yeah. he's famously, they'll yeah. be like, tell us what this means. And I'll just be like, no. He's like, <laughs> you figure wall. it out. Like, you should yeah. you should know. You should figure it out. So Yeah, yeah so, uh, man, I was trying to think of, like, I was looking at other people's summaries. For yeah, this give movie. me the paragraph description, <laughs> Travis. Yeah, please. Thank Drive you. tells a winding story of illusion, murder, and guilt. From a bird's eye view, uh, it is a nesting doll fantasy imagined by a woman racked with guilt after ordering the murder of her former lover and career rival. Over the course of the film, we learn that the story we're being told is the imagined fantasy of Diane Selwick, played by Naomi Watts. Uh, but it's not until midway through the film that we get the reveal that these characters have all been seen before. Um, is that a good enough uh, starting point, I guess, for this movie? I love it. I think it's, it's bold to lead with the, the ending. It's well, you can't. That's the thing about this movie. It's it's a multiple watch movie. Yeah, I think it's a. Uh, I watched. So this is actually my first time getting into watching this movie. Nice. Um, over the past few weeks, I put on like I put on Blue Velvet and I pull up put on Eraserhead. Um, and I was debating like how much of his stuff like we're gonna get into. I haven't seen any of Twin Peaks really. Um, I don't know how like deeply you guys got into uh, Twin Peaks either when it came out or uh, like since or. I mean, 
how deeply I'm into Twin Peaks is that I have a tattoo based on Twin Peaks <laughs> and I've gone to Washington to visit the diner as well as Laura Palmer's house. So it's like, What's yeah, I guess I can like, I can't, I guess I can say I like Twin Peaks, you know? <laughs> What'd you get tattooed? Uh... Yeah, like I got I got the you know like the background where it's like the the like black oh, and white. Yeah. yeah. And then with like one of the characters when she's smoking. Yeah. And then she's saying yeah, yeah, like yeah. isn't it dreamy? Like kind of all over yeah. her. Yeah, so. That's fair. Yeah. Twin Peaks like was it. my my introduction to Lynch actually and this is hilarious is it was a, a film school thing. It was of course like oh, my okay, freshman yeah. year okay. analysis class. Um they screened the pilot episode for the show. Um, and then we had to do, we did essays on it, obviously. Um, so I've written like, I don't know, I've written a thousand words on coffee and pie. Oh my. And like the <laughs> very sexual nature of coffee and pie. Um, and I actually did go back and finish the first season. I was like, everybody kind of tells you it's like one of their favorite or most interesting shows. Um, so I did go watch, I watched the first season and someone described the second season to me and I like, took a break and never went back. Um, and so I, you know, that, that, that's like the only lynch I saw until I watched Mulholland Drive today. Oh, okay. I, I watched right Mulholland on. Drive four hours ago. Oh, very <laughs> I nice. I finished it. Yeah. Like very, very fresh on the brain. Yeah. My sure. schedule worked out where I was going to have it like right on the dot yeah. and then come over here. Yeah. <laughs> so. Hell yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things because, like, I yeah, I've never gotten a whole lot into David Lynch. I think his uh, there there definitely is like a learning curve. I think with his movies, like where you really have to be invested in the like or committed to the the project of watching them for for a purpose. Like, That's a or, good statement because uh, Twin Peaks. Once I got into it, once I got past maybe the first two or three episodes, I really sunk into it. Right. Like I was like, oh, I get this. <clears throat> um, but yeah, you kind of have to. I had to work my way up to it. I didn't. I guess I wasn't like ready for it per se save yeah i with uh like i said i put on eraser head um maybe like a week and a half ago and i had that playing but i gave i was like i was i was watching at it like i let it kind of just like wash over me as i was like doing other things it was in the background uh i put on blue velvet and similarly like i was paying attention to it and like i know the beats of the movie and everything but i wasn't giving it like the intense focal you know viewing and even with this one i was like kind of stoned and on some pain meds when i watched it through the first time and i like uh i I had it on and i took like various breaks to go to like the kitchen and like do stuff and would come back and and unpause it and it took like another watch and a half or two before i was really like all right i've i've dialed in and i see what's happening here and i think i'm appreciating this movie for like for what it is and i think that this movie is definitely a movie that lends itself to that where it's like if you go into this movie cold like it is it's a difficult one to wrap your head around yeah and it's wild to me we have to say this like right at the top Mulholland Drive is like widely internationally recognized as one of the like top 100 to 300 depending on whose list you look at but like one of the greatest movies made in the last 20 25 years yeah um up there alongside plenty of other movies but like widely recognized by critics at least as like a very important movie it's like this is like people are just like it's on lists everywhere you go. Yeah. You're like I this mean, is important. It's, I guess it's beautiful. Yeah, like, and for a reason. Yeah, like it's it's beautiful. Like it's act. I mean, oh yeah. There there's so many there's so many great things about this film, but it's definitely not one film where within the first watch you'll be like, oh yeah, I got that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like oh I I un- like I understand 
all the motives i understand every single character i remember every character's name like yeah that's also that's also another thing uh with this film that i upon rewatching it that i realized no one's really introduced it's only a few characters that are introduced so i had to kind of like do a little deep dive and be like, wait, what was their name? Like, yeah. because they're they're they just start talking. You have to have like, the IMDb yeah. open on the side as yeah. you're watching it yeah. as a companion to yeah, your. Yeah, very much uh, so. Yeah. Uh, so we'll unravel what is sort of befuddling about this movie here in a second. But to kind of backtrack for a second, we talk about uh, so people who like me aren't as familiar with David Lynch. Uh, do you kind of want to you guys want to talk about about like what you know makes his style so weird? What oh, makes Twin Peaks? Please. Uh, what what makes the Blue Velvet and Eraserhead and and Mulholland Drive so interesting? I think I think for on my on my standpoint it's so I first wanted to give Eraserhead a chance and this was before I watched Twin Peaks before I had dived into anything else so I tried Eraserhead and I didn't understand it like I didn't get it I was like when when was this film made like it's in black and white like I don't understand the premise and it was only after like because one of my favorite things to do is once I'm done watching a film, like I'll try to like do like a little deep dive of like, oh, OK, like this is what it meant. And with David Lynch, like y'all mentioned in the beginning, he's very yeah infamous for saying, like, I'm not going to tell you what my films are about. Like, even though he's been asked multiple times, like he'll never give you a clear cut answer. So upon then rewatching Twin Peaks and rewatching like all of all of these films and not even rewatching, just watching his films for the first time, like he he is a mindfuck of a director like that. That's how I can that's how I can announce Lynch that he creates all of these worlds for you to fall in love with. But it's kind of like your like your duty, like as the watcher to like figure out what exactly he means because he might not even like have a purpose for like one singular thing or one singular scene but for him it's like you're the one that decides like what this means to you and like what it could mean to like other people like I'm not deciding it like it's just whatever it has come to my mind to paper to film like this is what I'm giving you. Yeah, yeah, which is like twofold, right? It's kind of like that thing. Uh, I mean, I hate to use him as an example, but there's like a Tarantino quote, right? Where he comes back and like yeah. talks about like uh, in Inglorious Bastards, right? Uh, Lieutenant Alderain, uh, played by Brad Pitt, has a like a scar on his neck. And the quote he has is, is talking about how he knows the backstory in his mind of why, like where that scar came from. It's never explained in the film. And he doesn't want to explain it to anybody because the idea is that every single person that comes into the movie theater has a different explanation for where that star- scar came from. Um, and allowing the the malleability of a movie to continue to exist for an audience is something that I think that Lynch does as well, where it's like, as soon as you just demystify or explain or codify something um, that you're putting into your movie, uh, you, you limit your audience's imagination, right? You're limiting their ability to consume and make the movie their own and do something with it uh, as an audience member that this form of art lends itself to, which is letting the audience participate in that way. Uh, and his movies definitely are open-ended in that way where they, they give people the ability to do that. Yeah. He, um, 
so for people, I mean, it's like that's the great grand thesis of it all, right? right? Um, or the, it's a cop out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, all of this comes with like, and I, I would be comfortable thinking that Lynch also kind of laughs a little bit as like, yeah, maybe it is a cop out. Like, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of right. knowing either way. Like, you yeah. still have to decide if it's important or if it's trash. The important thing, like the film school stuff, uh, the reasons we watched him is is uh like he's very he's known for kind of like trying to imitate dreams and dream logic um so like people always talk about and not like inception dreams like real dream dreams like like we always talk about how dreams the the logic just doesn't perfectly track like you're in a room we're having a we're talking about this podcast and then my dream like and then Bianca was a flower and I was talking to this flower um, which then started responding to me in French. Um, you know, like none of these things really <laughs> add like up. like a wicked dream to be honest. Yeah. And there's like a basis in linear progression. You're going from like A, B, C. Uh, like, and then we had a full conversation and I was in English and Flower Bianca was in French. And then we walked out and there was prime rib on a table with like a horseradish sauce waiting for me. Yeah. That's what I'm going to eat tomorrow, by the way. Uh, <laughs> um, I was like, how, how descriptive. It's very specific. <laughs> yeah. But Lynch mimics this like down to a T is like when he makes movies they'll he'll do things like um like middle of scene cuts or he'll refuse to give like the the tidy ending like there's a scene in Mulholland Drive where they don't even get to finish announcing um their marriage Mm -hmm. like it just cuts because he kind of knows we know um or he'll do lots of things where they'll just be like scenes in the center of movies that we don't have context right like we don't know the characters names mm-hmm. and it, it might be a whole scene you might get lucky and it'll like beginning middle end but it has no and you watch the rest of the movie and you're not sure if it actually has any impact on what you watched um and then when you wait this is the larger thing and it happens in lots of his other work too uh, it starts to be the question of like if you if that scene this random thing happens and it wasn't relative to the story then like maybe it's relative to the theme and then you start doing the work as an audience like okay well what does that mean and then if that's um this so then it becomes like well was that scene maybe just a dream and whose dream was it is the bigger question yeah and so with Mulholland Drive the the question of like whose dream um is like these layers it just keeps peeling back and forth and time in his movies are often can get confusing. You're like, wait a minute, are we at the beginning or the end? Um, where in this story do we think this fits? And mm-hmm. he won't make it a tidy, like it's not a puzzle movie. It's, it's a genuine, like it's not a perfectly cohesive, logical film. And it's what he wants. He wants you to kind of like do your homework or do your own, make your up, make up your own mind. And he was just like, we'll die on the altar. Yeah. Forcing you to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel like if he were to explain what a Mulholland drive meant, like what any, you know, what of any of like the new twin peak season meant, like it would lose all the luster. That's why he's just like, no, like I, I want you to not even figure it out. It's like, I just want you to have your own ideas based off of my work. Yeah, because everybody's own interpretation of it is is its own precious sort of uh, uh, form of art in and of itself, right? And there is something about, like, like you said, so like the dreamlike nature of his movies, there's this um, stream of consciousness, almost like associative quality between the scenes and the characters and the things that happen, right? David Lynch's style has been sort of codified into its own descriptive uh, eponymous Lynchian. adjective. Yeah, exactly. When someone refers to a film or other work as an art, What's or work a of Lynchian art, film? as Lynchian, yeah, it's meant to invoke so this uh, surreal and dreamlike like noir or crime drama riddled with guilt and murder and various other forms of devastation. 
manifestation against a backdrop of often non sequitur and atmospheric scenes. So um, while his films such as Eraserhead and Blue Velvet and Inland Empire, Lost Highway, um, and all of the Twin Peaks may not always fall neatly into the horror category, um, they do twist your mind and they force you to question your own sanity in a way that I think fits them into the subgenre, at least, of what we're dealing with in this series, which is a psychological horror. Um, so Mulholland Drive, specifically, is packed to the brim with all these uh, sort of Lynchian uh, signature filmmaking trademarks, right? Um, there's lots of symbolic content in this movie, uh, and it's largely a tangled web of fantasy and dreams and illusions. Uh, the scenes often do not flow neatly into one another, um, and the thematic meaning of the film as a whole is sort of left up into interpretation, right? Um so many people may know uh, this movie originally was conceived as a television pilot. Uh, the entire first section of the movie was shot in 1999 um, with the intention of keeping the ending open-ended for a series, uh, much like Twin Peaks. Uh, he was sort of betting that ABC would take another gamble on him to run a TV series uh, a similar sort of vein or it's genre. It's a spinoff. It was mm-hmm. supposed to be a spinoff from one of the Twin Peaks characters. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. 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 I didn't know that. Which, uh... I was... Why? You guys didn't... I read the Wikipedia no, article. Yeah. yeah, it was supposed to be uh, an open-ended spinoff um, who's, for the character whose name I had on a Wikipedia article that I should know. Okay, mister. <laughs> this is I awkward. read the Wikipedia article. <laughs> I, I'm honestly surprised. Like This is the one time reading Wikipedia has bailed me out. There you go. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. It is a... Spin-off for, shoot, not that, not that one. Hang on. Dang, this is <laughs> awkward. I just made us all wait. Ah, uh, you know what? While you're finding that, uh, so when the original cut was viewed, uh, oh, it was- Audrey Horn. The Audrey Horn. name okay. is Audrey Horn. There we go. It was supposedly a spin-off. All right, well, that was a waste of our podcast time. <laughs> I mean, not, yeah, no, that's not fine. at all. That's who I have tattooed uh, on keep me, it Audrey, in. so yeah. Really? Okay. Hey, nice. it's like a full circle Yeah, here. just a little full circle. There yeah. we go. Um, so the original cut was viewed. It was rejected for television. Uh, so Lynch continued working on the project, developing it into a feature film. Uh, the Frankenstein product was that resulted was uh, combined with the inherently sort of strange nature of Lynch's filmmaking style. Um, make this movie pretty near indecipherable, maybe on a first watch. Uh, I but wonder like in a too. I I read the Wikipedia article. <laughs> hey. um, basically, what I read was that the once the pilot was rejected, uh, they weren't sure what to do with it. And Studio Canal, a famous French uh, finance and distribution film company, or Canadian French, I think, offered him some money to finish it and turn it into a movie, which he was kind of appalled at at first, but I guess changed his mind. And they took a they I think it was like seven million dollars to do the rest of it. And he went back. They said they wrote that he went back to use like all the sets and the wardrobe pieces because it was all on like the ABC lot and all of it had been destroyed. Like the sets had been <laughs> torn apart and not even the costumes or, or props had been like logged and put into storage. He was like, Sheesh. we didn't know what to do. So they had to like figure out what to do next. And I have a suspicion that helped like get him the ending that came about. Was yeah. they, they ended up using new sets and new costumes. Right. Yeah, because there is this pretty stark shift in the movie that occurs where you can kind of tell uh, when it goes from like the original sort of setup and, and dreamy yeah. uh, premise to, to something that is a little bit more, I guess, literal, maybe, in a way. At least from as it? literal as it can get. 
Um, yeah, I guess let's let's do our best to sort of talk about what happens in this movie. Uh, I love that. Let's do our best because we're gonna try. Yeah, we'll talk about some of the scenes. First, here, yeah. the people dance. Yeah, there's, there's dancing, dancing people for credit. Fucking jazz, bro. It's like internet meme like it just is. cutouts of people dancing over like poorly rotoscoped like '90s purple backdrop of people in a doing a, a, a scuttlebug kind of thing the uh, this jitterbug is, or something yeah the jitterbug this is like i guess this is the dance that uh diane selwick uh wins the dance competition that she wins yeah in her small town uh before going to hollywood right um we kind of laid out the bones of what's happening literally i guess from a certain standpoint in this movie uh at the beginning but the movie kicks off with yeah with dancing uh followed shortly by a uh, a car crash right um so we get this whole car crash sequence uh, that features Laura Herring. Uh, at this point, maybe she is Rita or maybe she is Camilla Rhodes. Uh, but she is definitely Laura Herring, the actress, uh, riding in the backseat of a limousine uh, that pulls over on the side of the road. Uh, and she's about to be assassinated. And then, surprise, uh, a bunch of drunk, I guess, 20-somethings yeah. tear down the hillside of a, of a Hollywood racing road. racing down the highway. A la, I know you did last summer yeah. and Drive uh, down, crash into yeah. the car. Uh, and so they, they kill the, the would-be assassins and Laura Herring manages to uh, escape, although we'll learn later that she has lost her memory. Um, yeah, she kind of like tumbles. She like makes her way down this, this uh, Beverly Hills hillside, I guess, uh, and then wanders and takes a nap in some bushes like, like <laughs> you do. Uh, yeah, that, that, that part in itself where like she notices, she notices a couple like coming towards her which have nothing to do with her at all. But she, she's so frightened by the aspect of just like seeing another human. So yeah, she just goes to hide in the bush and then decides, I guess I'm going to take a nap here. Mm-hmm. Like, and then, yeah. And it, it bears like no further I weight sleep. on the story other yeah. than that. Yeah. She just wakes up in a, a rose bush or something. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. purportedly like this entire first section, right? Like we start the movie within the fantasy I guess of Diane. Yeah. Like of, of she's, this is the idea. Like this is the fantasy that she's constructing of what she imagines happens to her version of, of Camilla or Rita in this case, um, to sort of justify, we'll get or, to know who Camilla is later. Don't yeah, worry audience. Or to, uh, to sort of like take the edge off or, or, you know, serve as a coping mechanism for what, what she'll, what she'll do later essentially. Yeah. Right. Um, so in a similar sort of like dreamlike fashion, um, we cut to who a character who at, at the beginning we know is Betty, right. Uh, played by Naomi Watts, uh, who's getting off a plane, uh, and she's saying goodbye to some relatives or some, uh, you know, maybe they're just caretaker sponsors or. Yeah, we or... don't really know who they are. If they're like her grandparents, yeah, people that she just met on the airplane, or if they were part of the jitterbug contest yeah. that like she was a part of. Like we just don't know. But like she, it seems like they're they're lovely, lovely folks, and yeah, that's kind of that's kind of like her envisioning it's like oh like this is the cookie cutter way of me coming to los angeles me having this full-on dream that it's like this is where i'm gonna make it so like everything starts out very proper yeah and even from like so the way that like lynch loves to do 
you use the medium to also convey, you know, tone and uh, contribute to, I guess, the, the, the mystery or the fantasy of these types of scenes, right? Everything is done in a very kitsch way. It's, it's all very dreamlike. Uh, there's like Vaseline on the lens. Everything is very, very foggy. Um, and things happen in, in a sort of like non sequitur dreamlike way where Naomi Watts lands and she gets off her plane and says goodbye to her friends and her bags are already being put in the trunk magically by some cab driver and she's being taken to the apartment of her aunt where you know she has uh, a place a beautiful place to stay while she's going to go do Hollywood auditions and stuff um, and then she will counter uh, Rita played by Laura Herring um, also in this opening sequence is where we get probably the most famous scene of the movie right the diner sequence um, happens uh, right up top right at the yes. very very beginning within, of the movie within the 12 to yeah like I wrote it down within the 12 to 15 minute mark that's where the diner scene happens and that scene alone is my favorite scene of a film ever. Yeah. Like that one right there. Wow. Yeah, like walk us through, yeah. yeah, walk us through this diner scene because this is, I think, like it is also probably like, even though it happens right at the very beginning, it, it is probably one of the most iconic scenes in the movie, if not the most iconic, right? Yeah, so so after after we've met Laura Harings and Naomi Watts' characters and after they've met, we are just transported to a diner. And it's a very regular, kind of like Denny's, if I'm not mistaken, it's called Twinkies. And we see these two men sitting opposite of each other. And this is where I had to go to IMDb because their names, they're not introduced to each yeah. other. Because you're just you're just listening in on a regular conversation. It's not important. Don't worry yeah. about their names. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're just listening in on their conversation. So this man is sitting across his friend. And telling him, I had a dream last night. And his friend is already giving him kind of like a, like a skeptical look. Where like, yeah. okay, yeah. what? He's like what, rolling his eyes Yeah, it's a like, bit. what kind of dream? Tell me. And he's like, in this dream, like we're sitting here. We're sitting opposite of each other. And here I am and here you are. But there's something in the back. And his friend's like, I don't know what you're referring to. And he's like... There's something out there and it's calling out to me. And in my dream, you get up and I have like this and he like the way he the way he is explaining this dream to the man opposite of him, like just was giving me the heebie jeebies because it's such a simple, such a simple effect of you're explaining a dream. Like, but every single thing in this dream is happening and it's about to happen. So then he goes on to say, and in this dream, like, I see you, you get up, you pay, and we go to the back of, we go to the back of the diner and there's something out there waiting for me. And he's like, his friend is like, yeah, no, I, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think. I don't think this is anything. We should go in the back. And he's like, I fear I fear so much for whatever is back there waiting for me. And his friend is like, I'm going to go pay. We're going to find out. And then you just see beads of sweat like on this character. He's frightened. And then he he sees his friend. He sees his friend and exactly like his dream, sees his friend get up, go to pay for their lunch. His friend waves him over and you see him get up and he's kind of like shaking a bit and they they go around the corner of the diner and every single every single moment every single step that they're taking the whole time like 
every single time that I like watch this scene, I'm just like, whoa, like this is mental because he just explained, he explained, like he's explaining it to me. Like I'm the one watching and yeah. he's explaining to me this dream that like he has gone through and they're walking, they're walking, they're walking to the back of the diner and you can already like tell that whatever is behind this dumpster, whatever is behind this diner is frightening him so much because he has already seen it in his dream and every single thing has like led up to this point. And his friend is just like, there's nothing like we just have to face it. This is like, and what's so cool about this too, right? Is it it, like we talked about movies, uh, Lynch movies operating on dreamlike logic is like, Mm -hmm. that's what's happening here where it's almost like, like describing deja vu in real time, right? Yeah. Where you're describing something as it's happening, as you expect it to happen, as it's been like, you have this prophetic vision that is like, you know, recursively folding back in mm-hmm. and on itself because you're you're acting out what you saw yourself acting out, explaining yourself acting it all out, right? Um, and there, there, this is a perfect example, I think, of that like Lynchian dreamlike logic, where it's like this is exactly what a dream feels like when you have like a waking dream within a dream, um, which is exactly what this entire opening sequence is sort of purported is basically is, right? I guess if you're sort of trying to explain like rationally where this falls in the um the catalog of which sort of like nesting russian nesting doll of like diane selwick naomi watts's characters um psychology like happens right this is sort of like that first veneer that layer where it's like the characters within her dream are becoming self-aware that they are characters within a dream of somebody else's dream though and it's almost like they are dreaming of themselves as like dream characters and so it's already sort of like bending your mind and fucking with you because this doesn't show back up these characters don't mean anything after this right right and Um, as a clean read too you're you're thrust into the middle of it and you're like okay okay maybe this will be important later like maybe we'll get back to this um and they they don't and you're you're kind of but you do see the people later yeah not in they're the not the characters that they were when we when we first met them. Yeah, but what happens next after they go back to the dumpster? Yeah, and so his friend leads leads him to the back of the dumpster and he is fighting it. He doesn't want to be there. He wants he wants to get away from that back of the dumpster, from the diner, from everything. And as they inch closer and closer and closer and then there's no like there's no thematic music behind it either. Like it's very, it's very silent. And if there is any type of music, it's so subtle. And as they're edging towards all of a sudden, you just see this creature who, if I'm not mistaken, is just called the bum. Yeah. Or the tramp. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then they just, they just appear for like two seconds this creature appears kind of like a swamp monster yeah (laughs) and then just cut out of focus to the to the dreamer just fall like falling backwards and his friend is like trying to like pick him up and for that that scene alone that that is horror to me yeah and i think this is like that that's another reason where that being the most famous scene of this movie right and as a tone setter it happening so quickly at the top of the movie Mm -hmm. um the it, it sets the tone for the rest of the movie in a way where you kind of are trying to figure out what to expect for the rest of the movie um and it being a psychological horror and like pulling you in so many different directions and having such disparate tones throughout 
I think that's why I'm like I can I'm trying to like justify it being in the horror genre, right? And yeah. it has yeah, it starts with a jump scare. Like the movie starts with like a jump scare with a horrible monster at the beginning, yeah. Which is like I mean that's a pretty it, it's a rough way to, to to code whatever this 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 tramp character that shows up, right? Because mm-hmm. it's basically the appearance of this character is it's like a like an elderly woman who looks incredibly like disheveled or unhoused or something, and she looks as if she's been burnt from head to toe essentially. Yes. Um, not she does. She's not exhibiting any like facial burns or scarring, but she's just covered in charcoal, basically. Like she's just yeah. covered in dirt or whatever. But it's 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 enough of a of a, a surprising jump where she just slides, pans into view from the side of the dumpster, just hello, and then disappears yeah. quickly. And it's sort of a I don't know. It's a hilarious way to start the movie because then. then the next couple of moments are also just absurd and hilarious. Yeah, as well. it like really, yeah, like, and if you hadn't already been paying attention, then like these first twelve to fifteen minutes, like that scene right there, like it makes you pay attention. You're like, oh, I have to really focus now. Like this is this is where I have to like now start paying attention to every single character. And yeah, like what is reality and what is someone's dream? So yeah, yeah. that's fun. Um, so. Betty meets Rita, right, in the shower of her aunt's house. Yes. Uh, Rita's, like, stumbled in after taking a a literal dirt nap. She just wanders into an apartment that happened to have been open. Yeah. um, And is, like, suffering from her concussion, so she takes a shower, and then Rita, like... She doesn't even know her own name. Like, at this point, we don't know a name for this woman. Um, And that's when um, Naomi Watts walks in. Yeah, Naomi Watts walks in and with like no fanfare or musical cue whatsoever is like in the bathroom and then is like, oh, hello, there's somebody in the shower right there. Yeah. That's just sort of a, uh, I don't know, I guess this fits into the dreamlike logic as well, right? Where it's like just sort of becoming consciously aware of another presence within your own mind or your own sort of like dreamlike state or whatever, which is basically what's happening here. Um, Betty assumes that this new person is a, a friend of her aunt's whose apartment she is staying in uh, and does her best to comfort her uh, because she's clearly displaying some after effects of, of the traumatic incident that she went through of, of nearly being killed. Um, yeah. This whole, this whole section too, you're like the, this is the beginning of the relationship between Betty and, and who we learn will be Rita later, right? At least this version of her. Yes. Uh, and their relationship evolves in this section of the movie, which will divide from the later half of the movie um, into something like really romantic later on as they sort of try to unravel the mystery of where Rita came from. Um, this is another thing where, yeah, on my first watches of this, I didn't realize like how sexy this movie was going to be. <laughs> uh, it's a, like, I don't, like. It's pretty, it gets pretty sensual. Yeah. Like, for yeah. sure. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of, like, in, like, a lot of, like, female energy in this movie. Over the course of, like, the movie, this first half, at least, um, what the, these two characters sort of become to, like, come to symbolize, right, are the two different pieces of what, the later Diane imagines like justifies basically in her brain as, or like rationalizes right of the, the, the version of Camilla that she separates in her head mm-hmm. from the version of Camilla. Like she has her romantic Camilla and then the non-romantic Camilla who like steals her career away from her basically. Right. Um, and she separates these two in her version of the, the, the characters um, into a fantasy version of themselves that she can use to sort of like cope with, I guess what will happen at the end of the movie. Yeah, uh, it's it's way. very yeah, it's very uh, very romantic, like a very yeah, a very uh, rose-colored glasses way of seeing it, where she sees them 
you know, she sees them creating this like blossoming friendship and then she sees them she sees them creating like you know a world like just just by themselves like in that apartment so like to to both of them it's like oh this is our safe space like this this is where we can you know just be with each other and love each other and it's just like yeah but eventually you have to go out into the real world and once they do that's kind of where you start start realizing like huh like something is kind of just a bit off yeah Sunday scaries because it becomes clear that this is also her yeah like preserving the memory of that and like in an idyllic you know, little capsule that she can sort of uh, segment off in her brain I guess from from everything else that happens um, so I think at this point we do we get introduced to the uh, Justin Thoreau character and like what's going on in his his whole sphere of yeah they right? meet in a conference room right how what do you think of these conference room scenes these are some bizarre ones. This is also where we get uh, introduced yeah. to the character of, uh, uh, an- sorry, Angelo uh, Badalamenti, uh, who plays Luigi Castigliani uh, and is also the composer for the movie. Uh, he's the, the oh, synth he just master. Passed away. Mm-hmm. Just recently. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Very like, it's like, I don't know. There's a, a weird synchronicity in that too. We we, uh, we were just now talking about this movie and just in the past couple of, was it the past couple of weeks? Yeah. No, just I think it was just like Monday, if I'm not mistaken. Oh shit! Yeah, so just a just a few days ago. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a, what? A, yeah, yeah. Oh my yeah, god! Just, just a yeah. few days ago. Oh my yeah. god! I'm tripping. Yeah. <laughs> we're in the dream, dude. We're yeah. totally in the matrix. Uh, but yeah, so we get to do these like boardroom scenes. What's going on in, in like uh, parallel to the events of? Uh, Basically, what's happening with the Naomi Watts, Laura Herring character uh, is existing with its own sort of like track within the fantasy of, uh, of the later Naomi Watts character. Um, and within that fantasy, too, we get these standalone scenes where we see the character of Justin Thoreau, who plays Adam Kesher, um, or Adam, who is the uh, like the big time director, basically, who is in charge of a movie um, that Except is being... though, like I love that he's like a '90s guy. Yeah, he has, like, he's so nice. His hair is uh, just like in a, it's like a bizarre, like gelled up mop the kind of messy. The colored glasses as well. Yeah, oh my God. he's got transition the... lenses. Oh, and like the head to toe, uh, like black and leather, and he's like yeah. walks walks around with a golf club. <laughs> he just... he definitely has a golf club at the beginning he's of so that cool, meeting. Dude. Yeah, like honestly, when <laughs> when I first saw him on screen, I was like, whoa. Like, is this that's your, your vibe? That's your, that's, I was just like, wowies. <laughs> Very With cool. Perfectly square transition lens yeah, glasses. Pretty much, yeah. yeah, it's so '90s. This is the perfect idea of like a like a late '90s, early 2000s vision of what of what a cool guy is. Yeah. Uh, oh my god. He's got yeah. He's got black, jet black, gel black hair. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, he's the big time director, man. He's the he's the guy who's got it all. Yeah, we meet out. him like taking a meeting with a bunch of execs. His reps there, and they're like. We, they kind of tell him like you got to recast the lead of your movie and he's like what are you talking about I, yeah. we're we're set we have a lead which he kind of i think he says like oh we have an actress and she's brunette or something mm-hmm. so you're starting to draw connections here you're like okay maybe uh rita is the lead in this movie and then this mobster like killed her and they're replacing her or something mm-hmm. right like you're trying to create narrative structure out of it um and there's just like a series of bizarre events that like Adam Kesher, the character is like not intimidated by these monsters at all, uh, whether it's because they spit out a cappuccino they didn't like or because he's just headstrong is probably both. 
Um, and so it's like deeply hilarious, but also he's this, he's just a bizarre figure and his life kind of unravels, um, until he agrees to do whatever the mob says. And there's a lot of like implications that they're like fixing the movies or they're like doing what mafia do and like making shit happen that behind the scenes. Yeah. That's the idea of like, so this whole version of this character, right. uh, Is at least within the first half of the movie, as we understand it, like if we're constructing the fantasy of what will be Naomi Watts's later character, um, these scenes are really interesting because they exist outside of, uh, she doesn't interact with Justin Thoreau's character in these scenes at all. It's basically like there's one reading of this movie where we're imagining this is what, her fantasy version of this character is to justify basically everything that happens in the literal real world where Justin Thoreau is in these board meetings and he's selected. Like if he had his choice, right? He gets the opportunity later. He sees the name Naomi Watts character, the version of her in this sort of like micro universe. Um, But because of these external forces, because of this weird, like Italian mafia character um, and these guys basically like railroading him, he's forced to pick, uh, the Camilla character as his as his star of his movie, but he doesn't want to do that if he had any choice. Right. And then she also uses this fantasy version of him to punish him too. Um, so we get yeah uh, in various ways because uh, we get this boardroom seating uh, scene, and then yeah he takes his golf club outside that he just goes to meetings with because you gotta have a meeting golf club. You know sometimes you need a putter. Um, or I guess it's like a nine. I don't know what it is. It's like a nine iron. I don't know golf. I don't know golf terms. I'm just throwing words out there. Yeah. It's a, it's a golf club and he beats up somebody's car with it after he gets out of the meeting, uh, and then drives off to his like Beverly Hills mansion, uh, where he meets, uh, surprise Billy Ray Cyrus. Yeah. Billy Ray Cyrus Uh, is uh, who's sleeping with his wife. Yeah. (laughs) Just so we're clear. The way, the way that he's introduced, it's like he goes into, into this like lavish house, and I'm assuming it's somewhere up in Mulholland Drive. And he just goes to, like, see his wife. But then his wife is in bed with Billy Ray Cyrus. And she's upset that she has been found out. So, like, what Adam does, it's like, okay, well, I guess this is the end of this relationship. He goes to, like, look for a case of all of her jewelry and out of just being so upset and betrayed, he decides to pour. And I don't even know where he gets this from, but uh, a can of pink paint. Yeah, Pepto-Bismol style. Yeah, like painters. Yeah, like painters pink paint and just douses all of her jewelry with like with this pink paint. And then she she comes in and she's like, what are you doing? Then Billy Billy Ray Cyrus just comes to save the day after he has been sleeping with his <laughs> wife and like throws him out of the house. Throws like him out of his own home. Yeah, like Listen, it's such an odyssey. You find your wife sleeping with Billy Ray Cyrus. Yeah. You got to do what he says and say, just forget it happened, man. It's for the best. <laughs> that was, like, oh God. It, was, it was such a wild scene. When I watched it, I was like, what is this? Like there, there's a lot of scenes in this film where – you would be asking yourself that, but that was definitely the the first scene that I watched, and I was like, "Huh, okay, thank thank you, Lynch. This is like, what we're appreciate in for it. Here. Yeah, like very much so. Like you're you're definitely uh, you're definitely putting some comedy in here. Like so, I appreciate it. Yeah. And the story of this director is maybe the most like linear story, arguably. Whether it's a fantasy or not, it kind of as an audience, you're like A, B, C, D, E. 
and F at the end. You're like, okay, I, I, I had something I watched that I felt like I got like a story told to me. Um, and so obviously we we're, we're going to figure out what all these characters are just fantasies and in like this poor, like disgruntled former actress's mind that she's like changed the way that they are. Um, so it's kind of funny as like, yeah, he gets a very linear story, but it's all just kind of like made up. Yeah. Cause it's, and like I said, it, it's difficult. Like, it, it's easy to sort of like treat these as linear stories, especially on a first watch, right? You get set up this way and you're like, all right, we've got two stories going on here. We've got the story of Justin Thoreau, who is dealing with uh, the breakup of his marriage and then he's getting pressured by organized crime and some things are going on with him. And then we have the story of Naomi Watts and uh, Rachel Heller, who like they are trying to unravel the mystery of her amnesia, but then they end up falling in love and Naomi Watts is getting big time acting roles. But then like that all gets thrown out the window here in a little bit. But like, at least the, that's where we're latching onto here at first um so much so that like you know the the mobsters uh so like justin thoreau takes off and he goes into hiding essentially um he takes shelter at like some random motel or something uh then one of his the guy i guess running the the hotel or the motel tells him that his line of credit has been withdrawn um and that he's basically like he's out of money because all of his uh, assets have been frozen or something um at the same time we get uh intercut shots of uh these like bungle like weird silly hitman uh or this one singular hitman mark pellegrino man my guy he's my favorite (laughs) we have his like story too which is supposed to introduce like another thread like maybe a parallel story that's going on alongside these other two stories uh we get introduced to him dealing with like some other cd individual who he subsequently murders in short fashion and then also accidentally like commits like a couple of other murders because he just shoots through a wall just so so (laughs) so wild like He's only trying, like, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, he's only trying to defeat, yeah, sure, defeat one person. But then he, yeah, like you mentioned, he ends up shooting through a wall. So everything that could go wrong while he's trying to, I don't know if he's, like, trying... What was he trying to forge? Like, I think it was like some paper. What's that black book with all the names in it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, but then while trying to just get the one thing he ends up shooting through a wall and then cut to the yeah like the assistant of the person that he just murdered and she thinks that she's just like been pinched by something or like (laughs) i got bit real bad yeah yeah, like bit by a bug yeah (laughs) and then so he tries to like take her out and then then like the the fucking the fucking um cleaner also comes in and it's just and it's just like one thing after another like very much like he cannot do anything right but i think in that sense it's yeah like it's it's diane's way of saying like oh see like nothing came to be like even yeah which we'll talk about later but Mm -hmm. like even in even in those scenes it's like oh yeah like he's he's that much of a stupid idiot that like he would fuck that up. So like, it's not going to happen what she wants to happen. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so the rest of the story with Betty and Rita, like they're trying to figure out where Rita came from, right? They go to Winkies and they have, um, a, a lunch, they have coffee and they uh, encounter the waitress named Diane. Uh, and it awakens something within Rita, uh, to the point where they go back to the apartment and look up Rita and, or, uh, Diane in the, in the, um, 
the phone book, right? They look up Diane Est, and Diane Selwick is the only Diane that they can find. Uh, and they notably say how weird it is to be calling yourself, right? Uh, they call and get a voicemail, and Rita doesn't recognize it as her voice. Um, but it sort of like lays the groundwork for the idea that the the characters that we're seeing and the names that we're seeing and the relationship that Rita is having with like trying to uncover her own past uh, has something to do with sort of teasing out and unraveling the dream fantasy that uh, that Diane has constructed essentially every time you sort of start to poke holes in it uh, it becomes it starts to unravel and the reality that she's manifested for herself starts to come apart as well um, so they fire in the phone book they call her nothing goes well uh, then we get this audition scene right uh, the audition scene this is probably also one of the more unsettling parts of the movie oof man <laughs> a little oof. too much it, little yeah, too much, a, little, uh, a little uncomfortable a little too much just in- a bit too much industry baseball uh, for you. I don't know. What's yeah, <laughs> Lynch was telling us in 2001, casting these these guys are creepy. Don't trust them. Yeah, it's a it's an uncomfortable scene to watch. Uh, it's basically like the idea is that uh, the version of Betty in the scene or the version of Diane uh, Naomi Watts character goes to a um, a casting call for a role where she plays a uh, like a like a long young like Hitchcockian starlet essentially like you know playing opposite a uh, a much elderly you know actor within uh, within the the scene or within the industry. Um, so she does this, uh, she, she, she plays a scene in front of the director and some other casting people, uh, and producers basically that gets, uh, it's real, real, real intimate, real fast. It's so frustrating. Like they do the scene, uh, she practices it with her friend Rita Mm -hmm. and she's like playing it straight, like yelling at this, she's yelling at someone to get out of the house. Um, and then when she goes into audition, the lead, they've already cast the lead male, the guy she'll be yelling at. And he like, before they even start, he kind of like throws his arm around her waist and pulls her in like inches to his to his face and he's like yeah we're gonna we're gonna do this but we're gonna try it like super close super intimate um which you can kind of like and they do like people around the room kind of are like oh no he's doing it again this is happening right now yeah and you can tell she's uncomfortable there's a close-up of him like grabbing her butt and she's like you know she's a young actress the implications are there right they have all the power and she has none of it She's a young actress. He's the the lead talent. If she can impress him, kind of, you get the thing. Like, oh, maybe she'll get the job. The director's kind of a putz. And the casting agent's like, you know, they're like shocked, but they're not sad. Like, they're sad. They're not shocked kind of thing. Yeah. And so she does it. She goes full in and like does the scene with him and it's makes it like the sexiest thing She's like whispering in his ear. She like Very kisses him. Yeah. The whole scene played and it's a really really well done because we watched it and we're like wow that is actually really great acting yeah this is really well done um and he like and then she kind of i guess feels like she regains some of the power because you know everyone is just like holy shit by the yeah, time the everyone scene is, is over. in awe yeah and that's when she's kind of like i was right or like kind of gets her a little like yeah I, I i did what you asked me to and i made it better because that's the idea is like that's the version of herself that she is trying to construct in the scene, right? Is that she is uh, such a like a godly actress that she can pop into this scene. And even though it is against um, the circumstances of all these like very misogynistic and very yeah. gross yeah, and ropey, yeah. like directors and, a- and actors and stuff, um, that even within that context, she still knocks it out of the park 
and sort of like takes uh, takes ownership of it and, and takes ownership of the scene. Um, so much so that as she leaves with like the female casting director and other producers and stuff, they want to take her to another set. Yeah, they're uh, like, that movie you just auditioned for is never going to get made. Yeah. It's not happening. But come with us. We'll show you something else interesting. Right. Um, that actor, by the way, that plays like the gross lead, right? That's uh, Chad Everett. Um who uh, died in 2012, but it, I guess people might know from Airplane 2 um, or the 1998 version of Psycho. Uh, I was trying to pin him down earlier because I was like, he's just got one of those faces. It's one of those yeah. classic, like, golden era of cinema sort of, you know, yeah, yeah. man. He's very scuzzy. You're, mm-hmm. It is, you're like, oh, God, this is so uncomfortable. Which I'm sure, like, I don't know, like, that's not necessarily on Chad Everett, but he plays that role. Right, role. right, like, right. He, uh, he acted very well in yeah, that scene. He does a good job of portraying that character. Um yeah, so they take her over to uh, the set of this movie that uh, Adam Kesher is is working on, um, and the uh, we get introduced to another the other fictional version of Camilla, basically that she's constructed in her mind, which is the version that in her fantasy the mob bosses are trying to get Adam Kesher to cast as the lead in his new movie. Um, I really actually enjoy. There's something about like music within these movies too, aside from like the synthy backgrounds. Um, that are like kind of overlay like the regular scenes and there's like these other not it's diegetic it's not needle drop and stuff it's like these yeah. actors actually performing full you know songs within the movie because this happens a couple of different times either with this scene or with uh the scenes at the opera later on or the the uh the theater where they go and they see like uh the spanish performances of uh, buddy holly song yeah was, um, uh, llorando yeah well there's that one and then there's yeah llorando cry yeah cry yeah. cry or whatever um but in this scene, basically, this is the other version of this where, uh, like, Diane imagines that Adam is 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 basically caving to the pressure from all this organized crime and casting the Camilla Rhodes version that uh, is the, uh, the the career rival for her in the story. Yeah. Um, in the role, in spite of his, his own best interests or whatever. And um, in the process of doing that, she approaches ends up on the set and he like barely like shares a, you know, they make eye contact and he sees a glimpse of her. And in her version of this universe, like he is so smitten by her immediately that he wishes he could cast her, but he just can't because of all of the, uh, yeah, the, the other the circumstances. One, the one or two glances that they mm-hmm. have, it's like, Oh, he, he wants me. Like he wants me to be in his film, but obviously something is stopping him. Like that's the, that's the only reason why yeah. he would not cast me. Mm-hmm. Like, because he also didn't even have time to like, come over and like say hello or anything yeah because she has to leave really quickly she bounces and uh, has to go back and meet rita at the apartment because they promised that they would go uh and investigate more into uh what was going on with uh, diane selwick they're gonna track this lady down and figure out who she was right so they end up like tracking her down to the same apartment complex that they live in essentially or is it the same apartment or is it a different apartment that looks exactly the same it's a different apartment complex yeah like if i'm not mistaken the apartment complex where they're looking for the original Diane or the mm-hmm. reality Diane. Yeah, like those those were called like the Disney cottages, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, like ah. yeah. It's where they house the the working crew for a lot of the Disney act, mm-hmm. um, crew members because it was close to the Disney lot. Yeah, like and it's and it's pretty neat. I've actually like been uh, I've been to those uh, those cottages. Wait, yeah. where are they? They're, they're east hollywood i think i'm trying to like remember exactly where they were i know that when i went to when i went to like visit them uh i only stumbled upon them because i had originally um gone to this one area by like um 
Los Angeles that where the high school where Nightmare on Elm Street was filmed. So <laughs> okay. those cottages yeah. are just like two two blocks away from the high school. Do you know if it was like towards or away from the ocean? I would not know. Dang. Okay. <laughs> I know. We're like I'm deep in LA geography these I know, days. No. So yeah, I, like, I I legit where would have to. It? Yeah, I legit would have to hear. No, you're like, good. It's funny I'm, watching this I'm movie too. It's like we just got back. Like we'll, we'll record with Tyler here in a couple of days. It'll yeah. Be funny because I don't think we've recorded all together since we went to LA a few weeks ago, and so it'll be like. Our, our what was order. everyone's experiences of LA? Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, we're yeah. just like I'm circling uh, back on it. <laughs> I'm deep in LA geography right now, so Mulholland Drive was particularly <laughs> poignant. As a movie, I was like, "All right, this is gonna fuck with me." Yeah, we're, I'm just trying to dissuade you from uh, from leaving. Yeah, yeah so you're yeah, just messing. You're like, <laughs> see, this, this is what this happens is what it's when you be go. Like Daniel. <laughs> That's true, and it's such funny. It, it, I was laughing because, of course, like the story of this actress trying to get a job and make it big and then she fails and makes this entire projection of fantasy. Yeah, uh, I was laughing. I was like, that's like the same shit. Every fucking every, every person in Texas are like, okay, are you going to go to California? Get your dreams broken kid. And you're like, well, one, I'm not a kid anymore. And two, I've had plenty of years to have my dreams broken. I didn't have to go to Hollywood. What dreams? Yeah. yeah. I don't think I need to move to do that. So why don't we try it and see what happens? Uh, but this, okay. So this like, not to offload my personal trauma. Yeah. Right. Uh, this apartment <laughs> scene is another one that I think on par with, uh, you know, we, we we referenced Requiem for a Dream late, earlier, but this yeah. one this one also like it, it bumps up in there against uh, something that like I feel like is is brushing against horror as well, where it's a pretty like dark and it's brutal, unsettling uh, moment in the movie. This is the moment where I think it, it does get very very like close to the horror genre, where they go back to the apartments uh, that we were talking about a second ago. Yeah, these cottages, and um, they're trying to track down Diane Selwick. So they go to the neighbor's apartment, and uh, they go to the apartment they think is Diane. Uh, somebody answers the door and says that they switched apartments uh, earlier on and so they have to go to a different apartment um, they go knock on the door and no one answers and so they decide to uh, break in through the bedroom window um, Rita as we know her and Betty at that moment at least uh, break in and start investigating the apartment uh, they go to the bedroom where they find a the body of a woman who has been dead it looks like for several days her face is all decomposed her teeth are sticking out and it's a pretty gruesome uh, moment in in the movie, uh, it kind of comes out of nowhere too. I don't know, like this is yeah, a... like it. It was all Scooby Doo right up until they found an actual dead body. Things get real. Like, this is what would happen if Scooby Doo found an actual dead body. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. Like also, I I would like to point out that whenever they go to the original apartment, thinking like that's where they're gonna find like the person that they're looking for, the woman that opens the door. She has she has this tone in her voice like that sounds like she yeah, like someone has crossed her Mm. like which and I don't and I don't think that that has like been brought up enough. And maybe that's just how her character was supposed to be, because maybe, you know, since they had to like switch apartments, like since her stuff is also like in this other person's apartment, but yeah, like I, I like to think that like something happened between that woman and the person that they were looking for because yeah, she she seems pretty uh pretty upset. Cross, right? Yeah, very well, cross. The other thing is like she also looks like Laura Herring. Right. They share a couple of glances where uh, the neighbor opens up the apartment door. She's a brunette as well, mm-hmm. who has kind of classically good looks where um, like 
they and Laura Herring and her share a couple of glances where they're like, you you look fucking just like me, kind of. Yeah. Um, and later on, when we learn like the reality of the situation, when that same neighbor sort of pops into Diane's apartment, mm-hmm. right? We're kind of led to believe that maybe she sort of like replaced Laura Herring with her, maybe in some sort of other romantic relationship. There's some level of fam- familiarity where it's almost like. There is almost like a, like a Tyler Durden moment where it's like, I know you. Why are you acting like, you know, we don't know each yeah. other kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And then like the apartment's over there. Um, and then, yeah, they get into the apartment and they find the dead body. And then everybody like freaks out and collapse. Like Rita collapses, right? Um, because it is sort of, uh, it's it's foreshadowing for what will happen to Diane later. Um, but then also is just like, it is more evidence of the um, the fantasy, the illusion sort of dissolving and crumbling in within, within itself, right? Um, I guess this is such a, uh, a jarring and traumatic experience, right? Um, that they wake up uh, back at, uh, Betty's Naomi Watts's apartment um, and they uh, immediately want to sort of Rita wants to disguise herself and starts wanting to cut her hair and they dress her up in a wig that makes her look kind of like Naomi Watts in a way uh, and then they immediately want to jump and uh, go over to uh, Club Silencio um, and then well, they go to Club Silencio after they uh connect yeah yeah i guess i, I, did, I was just like yeah, i didn't I was about to just say, like, like blaze past <laughs> oh yeah. sorry sorry well, the no, entire because yeah. i was like trying to remember i'm like <laughs> does that happen like right right before and then and then they wake up but yeah i mean we they might have as well to talk fall about, asleep yeah. first is yeah the problem. exactly we yeah. haven't watched surprisingly with the slashes we've done we haven't watched very many movies that like i guess maybe a 90s slasher that has it in there in a way but i'm gonna have to put in some sexy music here in the editing uh because <laughs> things get very... i thought you were gonna say we haven't watched a lot of movies with lesbian romance and i was like well, well i don't know travis have we i mean on the i would say on the average if i had to guess we were probably like Ten percent of what we've watched yeah. total for the podcast. Yeah, what was the other X? I technically. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. Was X one? Yeah. There is, but it's not like an actual romance. It's no, more just it's pornography. Yeah, sexy time. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, they they they're back at the apartment, and this is kind of actually. I do think why people kind of mislead. So there's a sex scene is what we're trying to say. There's a a girl on girl sex scene, um, which is uh, Naomi Watts and um, uh, Laura Herring, Laura Herring, which they were both famously like really nervous about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Naomi Watts has said that like, I was not, she was like, I was not prepared and I was so scared. And they had to put like a tent behind so that she didn't know there was anybody else in the room when they did it. Um, But it's Lynch doesn't do anything without purpose. So yeah. it's hard for me. I was watching it and I was like, Oh my God, if Mary Kate walks in right now, she's going to be like, <laughs> like, what are you like? Yeah, is this are, just an excuse? What are we watching right now? Yeah. It's like, is this an excuse for, you know, lesbian pornography? Is that what the, like a casual viewer You're might welcome, be like, Daniel. we just made up a reason for you to have two topless yeah. women, like kiss and fondle each other. But with Lynch, nothing is, um a mistake nothing is gratuitous like it's all purposeful and here's how i'll explain it so after the murder after they see the dead body the next scene immediately it cuts to her hair getting cut she's mm-hmm, cutting her hair mm-hmm. and so you kind of have to draw the conclusion she's decided to change her appearance and it cuts from that to her wearing a blonde wig and looking exactly like hairstyle a lot like naomi watts's character and so the two, even for a long period of time, like kind of eyeball each other in a mirror, standing side by side in a mirror, 
are like eyeballing each other themselves, uh, eye fucking, if you're being honest. And so there's something to be said about like the the idea of self gratification, um, because immediate, like not long afterwards they like say good. She she's uh, Naomi Watts is laying in bed and um, Laura Rainey walks out and is still wearing the wig and she's like okay I'm going to sleep and she's like you can stop wearing the wig you don't have to do that <laughs> we're in the house, um, which cues up like this like oh just stay in the bed with me. Hence where like people might tune in and be like, this is just pornography because it's like, oh, but the couch is like, yeah, but I have such a big bed and I don't want you to sleep so badly. Just share the bed with with me. Yeah. And it it is. It's kind of on the nose. You're like, uh, this seems sexy. Yeah. It's like awkward and delicate. Yeah. And just like also not necessarily cheesy, but there's an extent of cheesiness. Right. Like she... She wants to make it known that it's like, hey, like, I want you to feel comfortable, but I also want to feel your body right. like, against me. So like, she so takes the wig bed. off and hops in bed with her. And uh, that, that one took me by surprise. I led, looked away. I didn't know she was wearing just a bathroom. Mm. And she, like, takes the bathroom yeah, off, she, and it's just completely nude. Yeah, she just I, like, looked back at my screen, it. and I was like, whoa, <laughs> that woman is naked. When did yeah. this happen? Oh. <laughs> Oh god! Yeah. <laughs> like, like flustered. Like, oh, I didn't see that. I really thought they were just gonna like take a nap. Um, and of course, she like crawls into bed naked next to Naomi Watts, and they're like whispering to each other's faces, like it's a cute romance. They like do a little peck on the forehead, goodnight, which turns into a peck on the lips, which turns into like kissing. And then they're kind of like, "Are we? Like, is this gonna get a yeah. little sexy?" And Naomi Watts confesses, like, "I've never." I don't. Yeah. I think she says like I've never done this before. I'm I'm new to this. And uh, Laura Rainey's like, that's okay. You know, we don't have to. And she's like, no, no, no. If we do this, I want it to be you. Yeah. And then it's like I wanted. There yeah. is like a, a, some minutes of making out and. and yeah, some, very. But it very doesn't sensual. feel exploitative, right? It's not like right for for an, a movie made in two thousand nineteen ninety nine slash two thousand two thousand one. Like it doesn't feel like. I mean. For horror, we're gonna cover like other movies and stuff that have exploitative and gratuitous like sex and stuff. Yeah, but this is not. Yeah, this definitely doesn't seem like it falls in that vein. And I think there's something also I think worth noting about putting these two actors in this in this situation too, where not to like be like gross about it, but like as far as the industry goes, right? At this point, like Naomi Watts, I think is like 33 or 34 and Laura Herring is 37. And going back to the production of this, right? When this was pitched as a TV pilot, um, the amount of, nudity and like you know and lustiness and sexiness and in, in, in it lustiness um, that's yeah. what we should call all the, sex scenes from now on yeah the the cut that uh david lynch delivered um those that this was some of the stuff that was pointed out as being a little too gratuitous for either the tv series and then also them ragging on the fact that they thought that naomi watts and laura herring were also kind of too old to be in these kinds of roles where you're putting them in this position as being you know sort of sexual symbols right. within this movie um all of that being said, I think it's like, I don't know. I think having that as far as context and stuff goes, like there is like, it's not exploitative, but then it's also like, it is very, it's very sweet. And it's meant to, I guess, within the, what we've constructed so far, right. As far as this being the fantasy that Diane has constructed for herself of her sort of idyllic version of her relationship with the part of Camilla, who we learn Rita is Camilla later on, um, the part of her that she wanted to preserve for herself in this section of her fantasy. Um, this is the 
the the epitome of of that romantic fantasy that she could construct for herself right. essentially well and this is what i say is kind of the kernel at the center of this entire movie is the human experience like when you have a crush on someone and you're like you know whatever your dream is about crushing on them like i want to make out like in high school like i want to make out with the, mo- the popular girl mm-hmm. it's never just like oh i just want to kiss this girl it's like i want to have and then you start laying out the scenario right you're like uh, we're at a party and you know she spins the bottle and it lands on me it's like the dream yeah, you're and then yeah but not just that we kiss and she realizes like oh I should dump my boyfriend like I want to yeah. this guy understands me you you have to have the emotional context for the crush to feel satisfying and I, I often well for this movie I feel like a large portion of the relationship between Naomi Watts and Laura, Her- Laura Herring is that she's building this is a fantasy she's building in a very elaborate story to make her, this crush this relationship feel you know gratifying to her it wouldn't be enough for her for them to like just kiss it wouldn't be right. like if it were that kind of a sex scene where they mm-hmm. just like out of nowhere start start making out um but it, it's this elaborate fantasy of like they're solving a murder together and it brings them closer well it's also the that trauma like, processing it yeah is, the laura herring character being like dependent on her and that her providing and being exactly. a, a force a wall like you know something for her to rely on which and we so learn like later almost, is the opposite of what's yeah. happening in real life so it's partially like a, a like fantasy, a wish fulfillment kind of revenge thing. Fan, power mm-hmm. fantasy but I do think that Lynch is poking at like the uh, the very common experience humans have of like you know crushing on somebody, and it's never just the 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 act of gratification; it's the emotional context within it. And so when you're like fantasizing about this act, you're creating extra emotional context. Now I had like an active imagination, so I really related to this. I'm like, yeah, yeah. my crushes were always like we're at a track meet and then we realize we're actually, we share some common interests. And then like as an, as an actual lived experience, you're like, Oh no, we don't, we don't have anything in common. That was, (laughs) I just, I just had a crush. But I think that's all to say, like to kind of also rationalize like the campiness of this, right? Because there is a level of like, you know, of of silliness to like the the way that they're interacting with each other. But it is, it is within the context of constructing a fantasy version of what, some of a wish fulfillment of what you would imagine, hope this interaction Naomi would Watts go like. Watts famously said that it was, uh, she now, um, looking back on it, the love scene is like tragic. She's like, mm-hmm. now that I know what's going to happen, the whole thing just feels like inevitably tragic. It is. Yeah. yeah and especially on a rewatch. She confesses her love, like, yeah. as, as they're kissing, as they're having these, like, very like delicate beautiful moments of exploring each other and their bodies like yeah she confesses like i'm in love with you yeah so then it's this very like beautiful moments even though you're realizing there's tragedy up ahead more so than what we've just experienced i just love the literal text like if you were to read it on paper you'd be like is this a porn yeah, <laughs> like reading like, the script and yeah, being like, like uh, then Who's you, got the yeah. lube? Yeah, it's just like, then you kiss and then you touch each other's breasts very fondly. Like, it's yeah. very nice. It's a sensual yet, scene. Yes, yeah, very they, much so. Yeah. They shot it. David Lynch had to tell them, like, because neither of them, as far as I know, identify as lesbian, but mm-hmm. they, they did this scene together. Um, and I, there's a quote from Lynch on set where he was like, it's okay to fondle each other's breasts. Like, he had to tell them. And so there's a lot of context. This sounds awful for like Lynch. You're like, yeah. he's like talking these people into a sex scene. What is yeah, happening here? It's difficult. Um, 
And it, it fame <laughs> Naomi Watts at the time did not have this was like her first real breakout role. She was yeah. not getting called back. She was not getting like any real auditions. Nothing was coming through. She was much like the character of um uh, of the fantasy character of Betty ben, yeah. was like not succeeding in the industry at the I start. I was going to say because that was something that was occurring to There's me. There's like I was a verisimilitude about the production of this movie yeah. on certain levels. You're like, "Whoa. How did he know?" Yeah, because Naomi Watts in her career at this point, right? So four years before this, uh, she's done Tank Girl, right? Oh, um, I love Tank Girl. Yeah, and then directly after this, uh, she's doing uh, The Shaft, right? Uh, then she does The Ring in 2002, and then The Ring sequel a few years later, right? right? Um, King Kong doesn't ha- happens in 2005, right? And I think that's really her big, like, blockbuster breakout role Yeah. Um, into, like, other than, I mean, The Ring is, is a horror movie, and, like, that really, you know, is a... But it's like one of those horror movies that launches careers, right? It's like, yeah. you know, Gore Verbinski doing Pirates mm-hmm. and, you know, um, Naomi Watts just getting more star wattage from mm-hmm. being yeah, discovered in something like that. Definitely Mulholland Drive was what Mulholland she expresses. Drive literally that, like, made her, her enough money to map. stay in L.A. too. Mm-hmm. She was like, I was ready to leave. And then uh, they conv- I think my Nicole Kidman convinced her to stay. She was like... I think she said Nicole Kidman talked her into staying through the release of the movie. And then when it caught, she was like, oh, I guess I'll stay in Los Angeles. It's just so crazy, right? Yeah. Because I think of Naomi Watts. I think of, like, I, I put her up there with the same, yeah, like the Nicole Kidman. Well, she's a, yeah, she's a like, Nicole Kidman. I think they're both Australian. Really? I didn't Nicole look up, Kidman's Australian. I don't think Naomi Yeah, Watts I think so. Is she Australian? I don't know. Yeah, she's definitely not American or British. Maybe she's Canadian. No, mm-mm. I think she's Australian. Yeah, I think she might be uh, like New Zealand. Travis you know? is googling. We yeah. do. We've done a lot of googling on she's this English. episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's, she's English. English. Yeah. Huh. Uh, English is just Australian okay. proper. All right. <laughs> okay. Cool. Somebody might. Like, she's there that, are some people like, that might take umbrage like, with that. British. Yeah. Australians <laughs> are just cool English. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll I'll leave that on the airways for people to digest. As I can't they wait will. for Australians to cancel me. All of our yeah, Australian like, listeners mm, are going to be uh, very this very asshole. Happy about that. Like, My name is John Garrett Scarcelli. <laughs> no, yeah, but what y'all were saying, it's like that. That's the thing. Like Naomi had been trying for up to a decade by then to be seen, like in Hollywood, to be seen as a serious actress and. David Lynch took an opportunity on her and maybe we might Daniel and I might have seen the same interview but there's an interview with Naomi and Lynch together and just how how like how much admiration they have like towards each other but they Naomi does talk about how once once Lynch had given like the go-ahead to bring her in he had to like looked um he had looked at like her profile photo and it was like hmm like and then he saw her in person and then he was just like this doesn't look like the same girl on the photo (laughs) and then so he had to tell her it's like can you come back with makeup on like because you don't look like the girl that i (laughs) saw on the photo that i chose because he chose her like from all of the like you know all of these photos and then and then yeah like but she had no qualms with it she was like okay yeah like if that's if that's what it is i mean that's the game right like if yeah you're auditioning. like yeah like and if that's what it is and then yeah she she comes back and then from from that point like she goes on to say it's like he actually looked at me like he actually looked at me while he was directing me like actually spoke to me like i was a person 
not just like another number on the call sheet like and so yeah she definitely thanks Lynch like for pretty much her entire career which I I was floored by that I was Mm -hmm. like whoa like I I didn't know that like Lynch is why Naomi Watts is who she is like because he he gave her a chance much like how Betty just wanted to be given a chance by yeah. Adam. Oh, yeah. yeah. There is something like, I, maybe at this good point, segue. it's like a good way to uh, talk about like the relationship between uh, the character Adam and David Lynch, right? Because there is sort of like a fantastical like version of David Lynch himself that is present in the 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 fantastic Adam character, right? The, the yeah. uh, dream Adam, uh, at least, right? Yeah. Uh, that he's perpetually holding a cigarette like on set. He's sitting there, you know, making call outs with a megaphone. And when you watch like, it's really fun to go... There's like a 25 minute like behind the scenes um, like uh, I guess featurette that's like you can watch on YouTube uh, of like the behind the scenes of this movie and there's no like narration to it or anything or no like editing it's literally just like raw behind the scenes footage Lynchian behind the scenes yeah of a David but, Lynch film. but it's very like it's all very functional and very sweet yeah. and it's like very interesting to see him like block you know shots uh, and to like set up dialogue and then to interact with Naomi Watts a couple of times during a couple of different takes to see Naomi Watts um, do one of the later diner scenes that we haven't talked about yet where she's sitting, she messes up a line, does a different take and stuff. And this is also 1999, 2000, um, and 2001 where it's like the monitors are really big, you know, the headphones, the setups, all the audio is huge yeah. and stuff. Um, and David Lynch in that diner scene is sitting at a diner table, like smoking a cigarette. Um, they're running takes back. They're checking the framing of everything. Yeah. Um, and he seems to be a very gracious filmmaker on set. Like, I mean, he is a very, like, the functionality of everything, as far as, like, him working, there's one particular moment where he's working with uh, like Ryan, the cameraman. They're doing one of the, uh, the walk-up scene that will that happens here in a minute in this movie, um, where they're walking up the staircase of a uh, Beverly Hills mansion, right? And it's a tracking shot, a handheld camera of uh, Laura Herring and Naomi Watts uh, from the front. And you see them approach this from, like, 15 different, sort of methods and angles um, where you have a handheld camera walking backwards up these staircase, like trying to not trip over himself. And at a certain point, he's like, Ryan, you do the cues. You cue them in. You tell them I'm on your hands right now. No, I'm panning up to your face. And it's like, he's not a rigidly astute director yeah. who's like going and, and ordering everybody around. It's a, a fool a of a director that yeah. thinks like my cameraman's going to walk backwards and I'm going to tell everyone when to do like, yeah, this just has to happen according to the camera person. Yeah. That's, that's funny. That's true. Though. Sunday scary. There's something present about that. There's a really funny uh, outtake, I think, in that little uh, short that I'll put on social media here. I'll put on socials for us to when we're promoting this, promoting this episode, um, where there. I think it's for the dinner scene that happens in a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll talk about this here in a second. But it's like the the version of Justin Thoreau's character Adam is constantly smoking a cigarette, just like David Lynch is, right? Um, but I guess since they're indoors, they have like a fire marshal on set, you know, in, in this California <laughs> set or something. And I guess at some point, the fire marshal tells David Lynch that he can't keep smoking inside the the building that they're in, um, because there's it immediately cuts to this moment where there's a speaker that gets it's like a megaphone speaker that gets set up on set that has like two speaker heads on it that look like eyeballs, and then a little like gap in the bottom, I guess, for the 
sub or the tweeter. And so somebody's like push, like put a cigarette in the mouth of the speaker that has uh, David Lynch's megaphone, uh, like oh microphone God. tracked to the outside so he can sit outside and smoke a cigarette and look at oh the monitor while being able to talk to the cast through the microphone. And he talks to Justin Thoreau and he's like, hey, Justin, introduce yourself to the fire marshal there. All right, now you can light that cigarette. Like, <laughs> it's just so funny. I was like, all right, he seems like a fun guy to work with. Um, yeah. But yeah, like through all that, there is something about like the way that the Adam character gets portrayed in this movie. He is like a, a fictionalized version of uh, of David Lynch, um, who at least like it seems that he there, there there's a lot of like fantasization going on here um, with his character that yeah. I think is, is, is a little, you know, so, it's, I, it's self-indulgent I, maybe a little bit. It's cool. After they after the two women uh, finally confess their feelings to each other. Um, I feel like there's like a large section where it kind of breaks into much more dreamlike. Yeah. They just go places because that's what you're supposed to do and things mm-hmm. happen because that's just what happens. Like they're sleeping afterwards and she like wakes up saying silencio. Uh, I think she just says silencio. Yeah, no, I banda. That's, that's yeah. what happens in the middle of the night, right? Yeah. Or like, cause mm-hmm. they go to this, like there's this theater scene, right? So they go to club silencio and they're uh, watching these performers on stage who are basically explicitly kind of laying out the device of the movie which is nothing is real nothing you're seeing is like really happening essentially um and yeah they listen to roy roy orbison's i said uh buddy holly earlier but it's roy orbison's song crying uh in spanish um is playing um and uh they go back to the apartment and then this is where we introduce the uh the blue box right uh the blue box happens in the movie and has many different functions throughout it um but it matches a, a key that they had found earlier in the movie. So, like, we, we talked about how, like, Rita and Betty kind of, like, get together. They're trying to unravel Rita's past. Uh, when Rita and Betty first meet, they discover that Rita has a sack full of cash, right? Yes. Um, and in the dream situation, the cash is supposed to, I guess, represent um, the cash that the real-life Diane paid out to, to, for Rita's hit, basically, to have the hitman go and murder her. Um, within the dream sequence, uh, the cash is accompanied by a blue key, um, which would later be the calling card of the hitman. Um, so they're trying to figure out what this blue key belongs to. And then finally, like after this whole Club Silencio thing, they have the blue box in their hand, and it matches the blue key. Um, when uh, uh, Betty finds the blue box and uh, tries to... Uh, uh, unlock the blue box with the blue key um, or Rita tries to unlock the blue box with the blue key she finds that Betty has disappeared um, and then uh, Rita un- uh, unlocks the box and then also just like, collapses it to the floor uh, so this is also like we said this is more evidence of like the, the dream situation sort of collapsing in on itself and like dissolving um, not like Inception no <laughs> just <laughs> so a, we're clear a different a different uh, sort of nesting dream situation um, this is like the first block of the movie that transitions into the second half where things become literal because Diane wakes up in her bed uh, in the ins- in the same apartment that we've sort of been- that has served as sort of like the backdrop for like everything we've seen so far right um, and uh, Diane learns that there's two cops who have uh, who have come looking for her. It starts getting laid out essentially that this is the real Diane Selwick. Uh, she's an actress who has been struggling. Um, she's been trying to get roles in Hollywood uh, and has been driven into a deep depression because of her relationship and competition um, with uh, the real-life Camilla Rhodes, who is the, the real-life Laura Herring character. Um, Camilla Rhodes has basically, uh, who was her former lover, has uh, kind of taken the roles that, that Diane would have taken um, and uh, sort of pushed her out of the professional sphere that she kind of saw herself in, and now she's uh, sort of dealing with the consequences of that. 
Um, then I guess we get the uh, the party scene, right? This is kind of what I was referring to earlier about the uh, the party at the Hollywood Mansion. Right. Uh, they're driving up through the hills, uh, the same hills that we saw earlier at the very, very, very beginning of the movie um, when Rita was on the road. Uh, Diane and uh, so Di- now Diane, played by Naomi Watts, and Camilla Rhodes, played by Laura Herring, uh, drive up through the hills, and they go up to the party. Uh, being hosted at Justin Thoreau's place. Uh, the old woman that we met earlier as Coco, who was formerly the landlord of the apartment where Betty was staying, is introduced to be uh, Justin Thoreau characters, Justin Thoreau characters, Thoreau's characters, mother. Jesus uh, Christ. <laughs> it's like, try saying that three more Justin times. Justin Thoreau's characters, mother. Uh, and uh, they proceed to this uh, dinner sequence where... Um, Diane learns that uh, Camilla Rhodes and uh, Adam Kesher, played by Justin Thoreau, are uh, going to get married. Yeah, and that that scene that scene alone is very uh, it's unsettling, and it's also it's also quite depressing because as she's about to learn that um, yeah that Camilla and yeah, like Adam's character, they're about to be engaged. Like, they're she's being asked questions of like, oh, well, how did you get here? And then like, you know, what, like, what are your goals? And no one's really paying attention to her. They're mm-hmm. just kind of like, like, if it's just like a regular question to ask in Los Angeles, they're like, oh, like, no one really does care about like what you're doing. It's only if like, you're a big star that's that's when it's important but then she then she over she overhears laura herring's character it's like man all of these names i just like yeah i, I have to call it's tough because like, everybody has two yeah. names right yeah. so it's just easier to call them by the actor's yeah, name it's at like, a certain La- point. yeah laura herring's yeah. character and yeah like adam that's when they announce that they're getting engaged and then you just see this like one singular tear down Naomi Watts's face yeah. where she's just like so upset because she was only invited like I don't know like in a sense to kind of like like be like rubbed in her face of yeah. like hey like see like I did it it's like you're not even that important but like I'm still gonna invite you just just so you know that like it's completely over between us because like you should talk about she in the process of that she is delivering that long monologue right where she explains how she like came to Hollywood mm-hmm. from Canada when her aunt Ruth died and left her some money and she she met Cam- Camilla uh, at the audition for the Sylvia North story um and that Camilla took her in and that she was sort of like you know helped her was was sort of like like took her on as a protege and like you know helped her with you know to get roles and get career through her career and stuff uh but it is it, it's tragic it's like it's so like it's it's mortifying to like even yeah. as a to watch as a as an audience member for this movie right it, it just like it's it's cringy almost and it it, it also lays out so neatly you actually are like oh <laughs> yeah you're like this is literally what happened i see so all the movie leading up to this moment has been her like fantasizing in an opposite world sort yeah. of like where all the opposite things happened to her yeah. and and camilla had needed her for her help instead mm-hmm. kind yeah of thing. It, it's the it's the kind of um the wanting like the hopefulness basically and like i had mentioned earlier about like uh seeing things through rose-colored glasses because there are like in certain times where you're seeing only the good and the positive things of certain relationships that didn't end well at all but the only things that are clicking in your head to remember are just like the very like 
nice and delicate and beautiful moments even though there were really ugly and like tragic things and and that's what Betty is currently doing at that table even though she's crying and I'm sure the 10 people surrounding her notice <laughs> notice that like she's in tears but they don't care and neither does Camila and it's just another another way of her former lover saying like this is this wasn't even meant to be so it's like now everything that you've been dreaming about it's like it's never even going to be a reality anymore for you so it yeah it's very sad and then there's another so there's a blonde woman who comes up and commit and kisses camilla right um mm-hmm. after like the whole announcement and everything and it's like the it's the camilla Rhodes from her fantasy that she constructed the uh yeah the fantasy camilla Rhodes who would serve as sort of like the uh the the version the, the aspect of camilla's personality that she split off from her her romantic camilla the like was the, canonical uh, one. yeah the uh, that was the uh, the career competi- competition for um, for uh, Diane basically right um, so the the rest of this movie right Diane uh, basically like meets with the hitman at the diner that we saw earlier right this mm-hmm. is the diner that we've kind of been refraining back to uh, the entire time at Winkies um, and uh, it, she they're basically making a deal for uh, to to have Camilla assassinated. Um, and she hands over Camilla's like headshot, the Laura Herring character, Camilla. Um, we also get like Dan in the background dropping a bus tub, right? Briefly. Uh, so he appears on the periphery. All the characters that she's seen before sort of appear on the periphery of her, much like the cowboy who yeah. we never once mentioned. Oh all. yeah. I guess we, yeah, we kind of skipped <laughs> no, over no, the cowboy. It's not yeah. important. Don't yeah. backtrack. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The cowboy guy, like he shows up, he antagonizes Justin Thoreau and then he shows back up again at the dinner party and then shows up at the end of the story. Yeah. It's all part of the dream. It was kind of yeah. one of the, like, was that the most annoying part of the dream sequence, like, of him, like, antagonizing Justin Thoreau? That was, a. Uh, there was something about that whole thing where he was like, all right, I need you to go back to your, your, your office tomorrow, and you're going to say, can you do that for me? Can you stop being a smart aleck? Can you do that for me? It's like, come on, dude. I know this is a dream sequence, and I know this is not a literally, like, real character within even this own, its own story, but, yeah. like... Maybe that's why I blocked it out. I just didn't want to talk about it because he annoyed the fuck out of me. There's there's lots of parts that the, the the movie drags certain scenes out, and you're like, this movie is this two and a half hours long, by the way. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's we're, definitely uh... we're trying to blaze through it as quick as possible. <laughs> yeah, and it, make the uh, most sense of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, she like she orders the hit on the guy, uh, and he tells her that he's going to like deliver her a blue key when the job is completed. Right. That's sort of like his calling Mm -hmm. card. Um, and then serves as sort of the explanation of why this blue key shows up within the fantasy world that she's constructed for herself as well. Um, so the, um, by the end of this in her apartment, like Diane finds the blue key on her coffee table. Right. We sort of like non sequitur sort of, transition to like her her apartment scene um she finds the blue blue key and then someone is like incessantly knocking on her door and then like in classic like lynchian style you get like weird special effects of like the two little like these old old people that yeah the people that like she met at the airport are like coming through the cracks of the bottom of her doorway and there's just yeah, there's they're just like, like inches ugh. tall. Like I don't know. There, there's something hilarious about that. It, that yeah. uh, I don't know. Um, 
but she's she's terrified of them and then runs to her room and locks herself in the room uh she opens her the drawer of her bedside table and pulls out a revolver uh there's also a little blue box in the drawer beside her bedside table and then she proceeds to complete suicide by blowing her brains out with a revolver yeah Uh, and if i'm not mistaken uh it ends it ends with uh the one word being said of silencio mm -hmm. yeah it's the lady in the theater with blue hair uh, who just whispers silencio. Yeah, right? I was just like, oh, I was like, okay. Yeah. Like a very, a very nice finishing touch for sure. Yeah. Little button. We're all just sitting here You're like exhausted know, by it. Like, <laughs> it's like, it, we're like we just watched the movie right now yeah. like, as we're talking about it. You kind of do. Like as you're reliving yeah. this, right? Like it's sort of a, I don't know. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a, it's a movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot to, it's a lot to take in because. There's not a happy ending. You've obviously been fucked over, like, by by this film. Like, it's beautiful. It's tragic. Like, at some points, it's, like, really fun. Yeah. Like. And funny. There's, like, slapstick yeah, comedy. Like, yeah. Billy Ray Cyrus, the cowboy with the big hat. I mean, yeah. yeah. There's, there's so, there's so many, there's so many good things about this film, but just like most uh lynch things like once once you start to kind of try to like pick at it then yeah then then you're just setting yourself up for homework at that point because it's just like well now i got now i have to figure out now i have to figure out what does the cowboy mean what what does the elderly couple mean is like does that mean that like they represent like that last bit of happiness that like betty had before she moved to los angeles it's like why why did the you know why did the tramp like from behind the diner of winkies like why did she have the blue box at one point like what does this mean so yeah there's a lot of questions it is it's a movie that like as you start explaining it more you realize that the experience of the watching the movie is really more dot like that's that's the the primary reward of the movie rather than trying to explain it after the fact um because it is arduous to explain yeah uh and some critics say like beware of over explaining yeah you're doing more work than than you need to to get this movie yeah um, so that's why I guess yeah, like focusing on the experience of watching this movie is definitely like is maybe something more, more of a worthwhile feat than uh, than anything else. But Very it's fair. definitely like I don't know. It's, it's it, I think this one definitely ages better too with more and more rewatches. It's one of those things that as you go back to it, you do get more from it on each one, um, but not just because of the uh, like the puzzle unraveling or uh, or twistiness like of uh, like we said like in Shutter Island or something where um you just get to pick out little yeah it's not a puzzle to solve guys like that's my first piece of advice you're gonna want to do that and uh there are some like little things like oh this makes more sense now like a reveal Mm -hmm. but do not try and fit every piece of this puzzle i think together interestingly it's it's less about like you know trying to figure out what everything means or where it fits into the puzzle but more of like how each like the experience of of uh of consuming the scenes, particularly early on change yeah. um, on a rewatch where you're, you're seeing it as a fantasy and seeing it as um, yeah, the, the coping mechanism of, of this woman rather than, you know, a, a, a literal story that's trying to be laid out before you. And so that kind of like, it takes the edge off of it maybe a little bit. Um, 
but I would recommend it. It's a it's a fun watch. Definitely yeah. like get very very high and watch this. Like I did. Oh yeah. gosh, I'm I would I'm bad at watching movies like that. I like I lose the thread or I get lost in one idea too long and then I'm like, wait, what's going on in this movie right but now? But I think for this one it works because I think you you get you're you you're more in the moment. Yeah. Like uh, yeah, you get to uh, you can preserve that no, totally. uh, that stream of consciousness sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, I I was uh, I was sick while. I was watching this film and I had like my notebook with me, like taking notes. So it was definitely everything down. Yeah, it was definitely a a good time to like watch it because all I had time for was to just sit down and watch film. So I was just like, this is the perfect time to like watch a Lynch film for sure. I have to do it sober. I honest to God, my roommate and I, like we tried watching Westworld together. (laughs) And at a certain point, we'd like both look at each other like, what the fuck is going on right now? Or we're like, we're, we got to stop doing this. Like we can do, we can do one of two things well, and we're going to watch a TV show. Like I have to watch like twisty movies, very sober. Contrast it. Like can. we, I think we drank two bottles of wine when we finished watching white Lotus. Like, oh, really? we that's definitely through. a show for, for drinking. Yeah. Wine. We, we watched the last four episodes, I think in one big like Whew. spree. Uh, Cause we started Gosh. early on like a Sunday afternoon and then watched all of them. Y'all are uh, crazy. Yeah. Cause I, I, and nothing better to do that weekend yeah so yeah. it all worked out um yeah this is great i think this is a great movie that fits into the psychological horror thing well and i think in the context of talking about like what sets the stage for the decade and a half afterward of um ari aster and other elevated horror things i think that lynch is definitely part of that conversation at least of what people talk about is like yeah what what when your goal is to try to weave a complex web of either you know symbolic you know elements along with like dreamlike fantasies and stuff these are the movies that people like to pat themselves on the back for for watching but then also kind of like serve as a yeah as you, good fodder if for, you're a regular human out in the world and you meet yeah. a cinephile odds are like 70 30 they're gonna be like oh, you should definitely see Mulholland Drive yeah oh like, my god me what? though I'm yeah. like you need to watch Mulholland Drive <laughs> I don't it's I mean there's a lot of jokes in film school about lynch in general is because they're like there's always the archetype kid that like walks in and is like i'm a huge fan of lynch and then name drops like eraser head elephant man uh obviously mulholland drive and then like blue twin velvet peaks or... yeah blue yeah. velvet and you're like okay and everyone else here has been watching netflix for the last five yeah. years so we don't know who lynch is or something funny uh to the point where film professors this is like a joke is film kids were like uh, I guess it's both cheap and like creative, quote unquote, to like make dream. Everything was a dream, or it's all dreamy yeah, short it's films. Yeah, Jacob's Ladder problem, right? Yeah, yeah. But it became this hilarious thing where film professors started putting in there, like, okay, when you go to do your final project, your final film for the semester, you cannot do this absolute nonsensical, like it was all a dream stuff. Like you can't just salvage footage and pretend like that was your intention. They're like, like, yes, I can. David Lynch can do it because he <laughs> had $7 million to do it. But all the film kids are like, you're a grown adult. You need to show me that you can work a camera and record something A to B and give me like just, just the bare minimum of Lenny. It was yeah. like a running joke in film schools everywhere. It's like some idiot's going to turn in like his home, his home movies edited together and be like, it's all about the, the rot of the American soul. And you're like, bro, you didn't shoot anything. Oh, you you mean didn't Skinner do your Rink? work. I haven't seen that one yet, but I, know, I have feelings about it. Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll set it's aside just a funny. whole different episode. Lynch is just funny because he's held up as like this uh, incredible auteur, and it's like the trap of people being like, "I can do what he does," and then doing it, and you're like, 
so uninteresting. Yeah, it's like you can't. Like Lynch should be the only one doing Lynch stuff. Yeah, it's a trap of a lot of like famous directors, though. I guess right, which is like the double-edged sword of of learning about and and researching different directors and learning from them is like the the lesson that you learn is like you like nobody is going to be you're you're not going to be a director like you're never you're never going to have the same it's just like with singing right it's yeah. like you're never going to sound like you know Luis Miguel like so you you're going to sound like you and you can you can take lessons from other right. artists and stuff but right. you can't be that person no one's going to be Stanley Kubrick well the joke is that it's like ridiculous to try when you're yeah. 18 and you're at a university like the, yeah, your yeah. your goal is to get a grade like yeah. like come on guys let's, yeah. let's dial it back here but yeah so that's Mulholland Drive uh have you guys watched anything else recently that you really enjoyed I think you probably have one good rec uh that I'll edit out of the beginning so you can do it here there's there's so many give me what you got okay uh <laughs> so here here's my here's my list of recommendations um one Pinocchio obviously yeah like we yeah Travis and I were talking about Pinocchio like on the way over here damn okay I love Guillermo del Toro and this film just uh so much goodness so much goodness of this like uh made me made me straight up ball like like a child on a Saturday morning like I I highly recommend watching this movie it's just it's beautiful the way the way that Guillermo like kind of put a bit of his like life story into Pinocchio and just if you kind of like go back and forth between learning about Guillermo's like upbringing and watching Pinocchio you can kind of see a lot of resemblances like it's so poignant it's one of those things too of like his love for like for like the whole stop motion animation thing, like there's something so precious about that animation style where it's so involved and it is almost such a, like a meditative, like feat, like stop motion animation is like the uh, stop motion animators seem like they're like the, like the Himalayan monks of like the animator game. Like animation is hard enough already. Right. Yeah. Like animation takes forever and it takes a very, like uh, very sort of level, like not level headed, but very like, you know, arduous person to be able to put themselves through the animation process and directing and producing an animated movie is one thing a stop motion movie using stop motion in a way that is not the there's a trend now i guess like that i learned about this recently about how anytime stop motion is kind of done in like recent times um it's done through like basically they'll they'll plot out all of the shots of the movie and all the characters and the way the visuals are supposed to look and then they will go and like 3d print uh you know each individual character and the expressions they have to make uh and then you know splice those in and and do some and basically use computer graphics to um combine the the physical and the uh the animation process uh in a way that sort of streamlines it and you get these very very sort of perfect end products but there's something about the way that uh Guillermo del Toro worked with uh the uh, shadow box production studio and stuff and how they, they preserved the element of stop motion of model making and character building that is imperfect. Right. Um, so there's so much about that movie that is like, there's so many flaws in like, you know, so some very subtle flaws in the characters and the, and in the animation that just like make it so much more real as well. Aside from it just being a really pretty story, like the full of fantasy and really, really dark real world, you know, magical realism and stuff like all del toro stuff is and it's it's a beautiful movie it's fantastic oh, definitely it's so good have you seen it no yet? i haven't seen yeah. it yet damn it <laughs> yeah you need you need to get on it it's it's, I will. it's really it's good i'll make it happen sure. um yeah 
What else you got? Uh, so I ended up watching uh, Possessor. The nice. Brandon, yeah, the yeah. Brandon Cronenberg yeah. film. Yeah, uh, this was my this was my second attempt at watching it fully. The oh. first time, it didn't it didn't it didn't grab me the way that I thought it would. Now, second time around, I played it, and holy fuck, what a movie! Uh, <laughs> it legit it legit tripped me the fuck out, and yeah, it's oh man. It's so fucking great. Like I like that baby Cronenberg is, you know, doing Baby Cronenberg. <laughs> yeah, what is he like 38 or what? Yeah, like <laughs> Baby Cronenberg just doing, you know, just doing his own thing and like you can kind of get a glimpse like you know, obviously a lot of people are going to uh pin him up like with his father. Mm-hmm. But he has he has his own style and watching Possessor I was just like, holy shit, like, I see it. Like, I like I get it. I get why people thoroughly enjoyed this film. Like, And I think we, yeah. we talked about, I think, Crimes of the Future several dozen ex- episodes ago. I about actually how haven't it was... seen it yet, but really? it's on my that list. One? Yeah, I, I, like, I, was, I was okay with it. Uh, but it definitely, like, in the conversation we had about that one, I think it was, like, Tyler that brought up watching Possessor mm-hmm. and how he's like, I kind of prefer watching. Like, it seems like Brandon's got a better handle on the modern, uh, or at least, like, you know, making movies that sort of fit into the modern uh, audience landscape a little bit better. Uh, notably, Infinity Pool is the new Brandon Cronenberg movie, oh, right? I'm excited That's going to be coming that. out. Uh, it's going to be premiering at the Sundance Film Festival next year in 2023. Um, so that's the next step on his docket. That should be really, really interesting to look at. It's got some, uh, looks, it's got Mia Goth in there with the, with the, with the scars guard. You got to have a scars guard. It's got yeah. Alex in there and it's, it's mandatory it looks, at this point. Yeah. Every like, movie needs yeah. a scars guard. In it yeah. There's like five of those fuckers. At least yeah. one Dude, of they're all awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, uh, uh, yeah, we went to go see. Uh, oh, sorry, continue. Uh, oh no, no, go ahead. What did I say? We were see? at the theater uh, over the weekend, uh, seeing Violent Night. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second. But yeah, there's like over the course of the trailers for that, as we were getting ready for that movie to show, um, there was like the trailer for Infinity Pool, which featured Alex. Uh, there was a trailer for um, the new. Oh my God, what is Bill in? Bill's in. Uh, oh, I just blanked on it. Bill Skarsgård shows up in a trailer for another movie that's like really hell yeah, really popular. Bill. Uh, and Stalin and and fucking Andor and yeah, else. like it's, yeah, yeah, they're all over the place, man. But uh, yeah, Violent Night is uh, we saw that one over the weekend. It's it's got David Arbor in it, and it feels like a waste of David Arbor. Like it's uh, <laughs> all the all <laughs> like the last two or three movies he's done. Everyone's like he can do better. It is like, David Harbor's great. I'm like all right, but it's <laughs> like because he's not what's what's wrong with Violent Night. Violent Night is one of those things where it's like. They, uh, the way it was, you know, it was marketed very, very well. Like, it, it's hilarious. Like, yeah, the premise of having um, a diehard Santa Claus go through and just, like, murder a bunch of, yeah. like, mercenaries or whatever. Um, it's a really cool premise and a really cool idea. Uh, the action's, like, okay. It's, it, this is one of those movies where we're kind of spoiled now where you're like, David Leach should have directed this. Like, it should have been, like, it could have been... Could have been really cool. They had a couple of sequences in there. You could see where they were like, this is the centerpiece, the action centerpiece of the movie. Yeah. Um, they have like a whole thing with like a uh, the, 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 the in-law family that's supposed to be the comedic relief. But they're like four characters short of like a, a full enough cast mm. to really pad it out and like have them play off each other. Um, it's okay. It's, it's, it's a decent yeah, movie, but it's nothing. I've only, yeah, I've only, I've only heard about it. I haven't even like, watch the trailer because there's also another um like 
killer Santa hardcore mm. movie coming out, like Christmas, Bloody Christmas. Yeah, so there's a lot of those. Like, I mean, there's just, <laughs> that's becoming its own genre Yeah, it now. really is. It's like, just the like, Christmas horror yeah, genre like, is amazing. Yeah, which, it's fun. Yeah, like, I'm, I love it. I'm like, I'm all for it, like, but yeah, definitely... A lot of a lot more people uh, are leaning towards now, like um, yeah, like uh, holiday horror films. Speaking of holiday horror films, uh, if y'all haven't seen it, and you know what, everyone has seen this film uh, before me, and it was my first time watching it a few days ago. Uh, Prisoners. Oh, uh, you call that a holiday horror? <laughs> because it's set around Thanksgiving. <laughs> I guess it is, yeah. Yeah, but it- <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> It's, yeah, what a what a good feel good Christmas. Movie. Yeah, exactly. You're right. yeah. Hell yeah. Set, set around <laughs> Thanksgiving, you know, it's just two families hanging out, coming together. Do, yeah, coming together to share some turkey, share some good stories. No, some prisoners. Light torture. Jesus, prisoners is like holy fuck. It really makes you think about Hugh Jackman, though. Yeah. You're like, wow, he uh, he can do a lot more he than can flip a switch. Yeah, 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 very much so, yeah. but. Yeah, I mean Hugh Jackman plays plays a father yeah. and you know, he has he has a young daughter along with uh his like along with the family that lives across the street, they also have a young daughter and it's just about it's just about these two kids, you know, uh getting into shenanigans <laughs> and uh that's all the I really family comedy of the year, yeah. That's all I really want to say yeah. about prisoners because it is fucking intense like paul dano is in it and man it's like you you don't you don't even know you don't even know who to believe in this film and that's what <laughs> i loved about it. it's like who's the real villain here like who like who's t- like who actually is the prisoner right now like i don't know <laughs> like is it me because now i'm like trying to decide like who to root for oh it's it's such a good film yeah that's a good one no i yeah, love that movie yeah, yeah. but yeah that's what, what I, got, that's what I've been watching. Shoot, man. I'm on a dry spell. I'm, oh. I mentioned previously, Mary-Kate, I kind of tricked us. We're watching all the Star Wars movies in nice, our household yeah. right now. <laughs> well, I'm not convinced it's nice because of the six, of the five, no, set, oh, God, seven I've watched so far, uh, I've really only vibed well with like two, maybe mm. three. What order are you guys watching them? Uh release order no disney plus does this thing where it's like the star wars universe in, in chronological order that's what i was curious about yeah and it presents all the all the movies and tv shows in chronological order we just decided to skip tv shows because clone wars has like eight seasons and oh yeah you can't episodes getting all the way to like, clone wars is, we'll uh, never fucking yeah. get to like the next movie um so we just did the movies in chronological order so we watched it's actually like, kind of a cool thing to do especially with the prequels it's like yeah. jumping back and forth between different eras of production it's like, very rewarding if you're if you like pay attention to the details of it. you're like oh that character that's why this happens in the later movies or yeah. they, like this explains some things in the galactic cut cinema work. uh yeah i'm sorry everyone <laughs> Uh, that's okay. No, well, I don't have I don't have much Rex to give because we're deep in the space world, space stars wars world, stars wars, and it's it hurts me. My brain hurts. I'm ready for something else. I'm excited for you to go on this journey. I am not. I'm like that's my favorite. I've, thing to do, I've seen it all. I did. I've done this multiple times. So I'm like, Ugh, put me out of my misery. I don't need to watch the rest of these. I've seen it. I've done it. I know what happens. 
I tried rewatching the ninth one recently, and I literally it's, forgot it as soon as it yeah. was over. I forgot everything that had happened until, in that movie. Until, it's so sad. I'm like, yeah. oh, this is supposed to be like an important moment, and I just flat out was like, no, I don't know what what happened. It's like the credits are rolling. I You're swear like, to God, I just watched take this. Take me out. Take me out right yeah, now. Yeah, put, put me on my misery. This is why I like harp on the eighth one. I'm like, eh, eight was pretty great. It was. It gets better and better with time, right? Um, Truly. I watched. Uh, so we had an interview with Josh Rubin that we did over the we or on uh, Monday actually, uh, and for that, uh, watched a bunch of different projects and movies that he's involved in. Um, if you haven't seen Werewolves Within, definitely watch that too. It's actually Ooh, like call. written and directed by Josh Rubin. Uh, it's kind of like his. He has some other movies, another movie that he wrote and directed as well. That's like his directorial, you could call it a directorial debut for a future or whatever. But this is the first project that he's like not starring in. Uh, that has a bunch of other actors that is like just a fun, cool mystery movie uh, that is actually really like for the scale of it and for what it is like just a good old time uh, with some really, really funny characters and some funny actors in there um, that I think is worth watching. You can buy it on Amazon Prime um, to stream, uh, or I think you can order a physical copy of it as well if you want. Uh, highly recommend that. Uh, I also watched Plan B, um, which oh, is a yeah. Hulu original that's really fun. That also that stars Victoria Morales, who um, stars in another movie that Josh Rubin is in called Blood Relatives. Uh, Plan B is like a... Um, Kind of like a teen comedy, but like a girl teen comedy. It's like the like a girl super bad kind of. Why does it have uh, to be a girl teen comedy, Travis? Why it can't revolves, it just be a teen comedy? It revolves around some very specifically female problems, which uh, yeah, like yeah. I got you. <laughs> so You're I, like, oh, okay, okay, got it. Uh, yeah, makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Victoria Morales, who stars in Blood Relatives, also stars in this movie, uh, and her and her co-star kind of function as like the uh, yeah the young teens sort of like going out trying to lose their virginity or like also just get you know they're trying to there's some a couple of love interests that they're trying to uh trying to connect with um and then they face a lot of other like really hilarious like challenges and hijinks throughout the way um that's free to stream on hulu right now um it's a good movie i think it's really fun cool uh you guys got anything else um no like yeah i think i think that's it i mean i've just been watching uh so so many movies i think i think probably over the past three weeks i've watched at least like 20 movies and that's a lot (laughs) like i like there's there's too many it's like i watched play misty for me that was a trip like if y'all haven't (laughs) seen that one it's like this clean like clint eastwood film from like 1971 he plays like a radio disc jockey and meets meets a woman that has been calling calling to his radio show every night asking for him to play this song called misty Hmm. and it is it is a trip honestly like i i really i really enjoyed it uh automatically yeah like automatically it grabbed me and yeah like it's it's super fun because then he meets her in real life and things just start happening (laughs) <laughs> like it's it's super super fun but yeah and there were just there were just so many so many other ones that that I just like kept watching I was like whoa like this is what I'm doing with my life right now it's just like constantly watching movies but you know what that's a good life so yeah it's a really good yeah. life yeah. I will say oh my last one was uh, Amsterdam is finally f- streaming now on HBO How, did you watch Amsterdam when it came out no yeah I have mixed feelings okay i've mixed feelings about the director too but yeah david russell there's problems with him and then there's but it, it is a movie uh christian bale 
Uh, it is a movie, but it is it a movie. Is, it is a it movie. Is a movie. Yeah. Yeah. It exists. It is a movie. Christian Bale's in there. Uh, John Davis Washington. Uh, Taylor Swift shows up randomly for a second. Uh, Chris Rock's in there. It's got. It's everybody's in this fucking movie. Margot Robbie. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. It's just kind of like it's got a lot of stuff in there. Like it, it could be like it has the um, the veneer of being a good movie, but or like a movie that would be good, but it's just just not enough that happens and not not enough to like latch onto to like really care about uh, maybe we'll i'll do like a, a deeper conversation about that at some point but about yeah. amsterdam about movies that should have more but amsterdam don't. specifically <laughs> yeah but that is what it is but uh hey uh this podcast has an instagram it's uh at scary sunday scaries we also have a patreon if you go to patreon.com slash scary sunday scaries for as little as a dollar uh you can get early access to episodes and participate in community posts with me and all the other hosts um i'm at travel guy on instagram if you want to follow me I'm uh sorry. I'm at DG underscore Pappas on Instagram. Come follow me. I'm gonna do a cross country move here pretty soon. I'll post some stuff. That'll be fun. See how ridiculous it gets. Yeah, I'm excited for it. Oh gosh. Yeah. What about you, Bianca? Uh, yeah. I'm just at the girl who works at the box office, and it's the yeah. Fucking <laughs> Feel free to follow me. I also have a another Instagram called Cinema Con Nosotros. It's a uh, spanish series that i've started curating at the texas theater but also it's just something that i love and it's something that's mine where i get to talk about spanish films because i love spanish cinema so yeah hell yeah uh if you want to suggest any movies for us to watch or you have any questions or you want to email me and tell me some stuff that we missed when we talked about this episode you can email uh scary sunday scaries at gmail.com uh do that we'll we'll take your feedback feedback in stride and we'll uh, use that going forward as we record new episodes um this week we listened we uh watched and talked about maholland drive directed and written by david lynch uh for next week do you know what movie we're doing i do what movie are we doing is it gremlins well gremlins is gonna come God damn that it. was gonna be our special christmas present we'll cut that part out it's wait okay. hang on quick pause uh, is it Jacob's Ladder? No, we didn't do that one. Uh, no, it's gonna be Gothica. Damn it! I was not even close. I was thinking of other things. I know. I skipped like three things on the list. There was uh, also oh, options for different holiday movies. So <sighs> I am less sad. All right, next week we're doing Gothica, guys. Watch Woo! Gothica. Hey. It's gonna be we're kind of like tailing towards the end of this uh, series on psychological horror. Uh, so that's gonna be one of the penultimate sort of installments. I'm ready for uh, this series to be over so my brain can feel normal again. Yeah, it's kind of. It takes a toll for sure to watch like a lot of cycles. You do several of these in a row yeah. and then have two hour long conversations about them. Yeah. It You're kind like, of takes what drains on real? you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, go watch Gothica and then come listen to us talk about it next week. It should be really fun. I'm excited about it. We're getting to the holiday season. And so we'll have a little Christmas present dropping for you soon too as well. Hell yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Super dope. I'll talk to you soon guys. Have a good week. Bye. Sunday Scaries.